Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The phone calls come in to the offices of Extreme Championship Wrestling. From all the fans in the great wrestling town of Memphis, Tennessee. Please save this decrepit city state of professional wrestling. Jerry Lawler has sold his soul to the WWF and sold Memphis Wrestling right down the drain along with him. But I told you people that 10 years ago. I told you what a scumbag Jerry Lawler was. He was then, and he's even a bigger scumbag now. We understand at ECW. See, four years ago, the group of people that stand with me today took the city of Philadelphia by storm. Took a town that was burned to the ground by the two big wrestling promotions, and they forgot where they came from. At ECW, we never forget where we come from. At Memphis, Tennessee, we know what you want. Extreme, hardcore, professional wrestling at its very best. And on a personal note, we're coming here to show up the king. We're coming here to show up the entire USWA. PG-13 can tell you all about that. We are here to show up the king because Jerry Lawler, on a personal note, I swear to God, I hate your filthy, stinking <laughs> guts. And it's going to be my pleasure for the wrestlers of Extreme Championship Wrestling to show you up in your hometown tomorrow night at the Big One Expo Center, a whole new era in Memphis wrestling begins. Because if you get to check out ECW, it goes like this. If you're not a fan of professional wrestling, you will become one. And if you are, we're going to blow your socks off tomorrow night at the Big One Expo Center when we take you to the extreme. Wait a minute. ECW and the USWA? Yeah, 1997 was an awesome fucking year for ECW. Not only did they have their first ever pay-per-view, Barely Legal. Not only did they invade Monday Night Raw. Not only did they invade FMW, work with Michinoku Pro and a few other organizations. But yes, they also had some battles in USWA. Tommy Dreamer versus Dutch Mantel, who you now know as Zeb Coulter. We knew that the storyline with Jerry Lawler was going on, but it was so cool to see ECW on their own TV, Monday Night Raw, Japan, USWA. And we'll get into more of that a little bit later because the feud of USWA versus ECW began this week in wrestling history. What's up, everyone? Don Tony, as always. This is episode 22. And this week, we will be covering the period of May 29th, through June 4th. Now, now those in the United States are already aware of this. Those overseas may not, but every year around this time, we celebrate Memorial Day. And when I was a kid, I remember that when Memorial Day came around and wrestling was going on, you still wanted to see it. If anything, you wanted to see it more because you were off that extra day. But 
In this era, though, you kind of see it every year. Oh, it's a holiday. People aren't focused on wrestling like they normally do. They're out with their friends and family barbecuing, just remembering also all of the people who served and gave up their life for our freedom. But wrestling usually on Monday nights starts at 9 p.m. And I think by that time, the barbecues are over. People are home preparing for work, school, and whatever else for the next day, just like they do every week. So to me, I think it's pretty much a lame excuse to just go through the motions now with holidays. The reason why I'm even mentioning this is because when you look at the overall episode that we do this week, the amount of results will be a little bit less. However, I expect this episode to go pretty much the length it's been going because we do have about 12, maybe more audio clips to play. Really, really cool ECW influence this week. And a lot of it is uh, content that you may not have even heard. Seriously. Um, some very memorable wrestle crap that we'll get into as well. But um, included this week is about 35 of 50 minutes that Vince McMahon did in an interview back in 2004 with Michael Landsberg. It's an interview that I don't think a lot of people have heard before. And I listened to it in its entirety this week to see if it was, you know, interesting for people to hear. And yes, I edited out about 15 minutes of it because some of the content I think nobody would be interested in hearing this day, but it is very interesting to hear him in 04. First off, you got to understand, this is about three years removed from WCW closing down. And in my opinion, 0203's roster was just incredible for WWE. You get to 04, you kind of start seeing transition you know, going on. Uh, if you actually read discussions and blogs, a lot of people will look back at this era and say, you know, did Benoit and Eddie, even though when they were world champion, did they kind of like not draw like other champions? Austin was done. Goldberg was not there. Lesnar was done. They started getting ready, I think, to go full-blown PG. And even when you hear Vince do these interviews from 04 on very mellow very professional much 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 more benign compared to years past i mean come on if you listen to this show every week we throw on a vince interview with costas or even some previous interviews he did much much different much different so i think you will find that interview very very interesting especially when they talk about steroids uh, trust me, it, there's some content in here that is very memorable. So let's get into it, shall we? Now, uh, we're going to get literally right into audio clips in about two minutes. But I got to mention two things very quickly. First off, only because a lot of fans go back to the 80s, you know, more than anything. And one of the tag teams that I saw growing up when I was very young as a wrestling fan, just a kid, was Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito. And Mr. Saito, I don't think, was looked at all that spectacular when he was teaming up with Fuji here. However, you saw him wrestle in Japan years later, and he actually did a little bit of uh, work in WCW. And I thought he was much more impressive at that time, but it was this week in 65, he debuted for the Japan Wrestling Association's Golden Series Day 6 event in Sapporo, Japan. He wrestled under the name Masanori Saito and lost against Sarukichi Takaskiyama. 
I'm really proud of myself. I've been working so goddamn hard to make sure I got everybody's Japanese names down pat. It's not easy, trust me. Especially when I didn't do history shows in the past and you get all these names from Japan. It, it could be a little rough, but I think we got it down pat. Kind of proud of myself, but anyway, we fast forward to 83, Philly. Andre the Giant versus Big John Studd. This match is memorable for the wrong reasons. It's legendary, actually. And believe it or not, you could watch the footage on YouTube. Now, just imagine Andre and Big John Studd going 18 minutes. Okay. It's that's an unheard of for those two guys. But the most interesting thing about this match is about half of it, almost nine minutes, like eight and a half to nine minutes of it. All that's happening is Big John Stud has a front face lock on Andre the Giant, and they're basically both laying on the mat. Eight and a half minutes of Big John Stud with a front face lock on Andre. Now, legend has it that Andre the Giant fell asleep during this match. Um, some other people have said that he drank so much that he was nodding off, he was incoherent, he was, you know, not sleeping, but he was out of it. I kind of tend to believe that because if you actually watch this footage, he does move around. His legs move around, he's scrambling, but man, the fans were so pissed off. Go look at it. Sit there and watch the eight and a half minutes and just imagine. And it was kind of sad because, you know, Andre was so popular still at that time. And to just endure almost nine minutes of them laying on the mat, it's it's comical to look at now, but it was not fun at that time. So now we go to 1985, Pennsylvania once again, Allentown at the Agricultural Hall. I'm jealous. I am freaking jealous of this because I had no idea that both of these took place at the same taping. All right. Now, look, we're not talking about matches right now. Two very famous moments in the WWF in 85 took place at the same taping this week in 85. First off, it was the legendary Piper's Pit with Cindy Lauper. And it, you know what's cool about it? I actually have some funny audio of... Roddy Piper showing up at Cindy Lauper's musical studio. I didn't cap the audio for this episode because it actually takes place the following week, but it's funny, funny shit to see Roddy Piper show up at her studio. And seriously, they gelled so great together. And I know on my other shows, I've said for many years, Cindy Lauper should have been in the WWE Hall of Fame. 15 years ago. And I know a lot of people don't put much credence in the Hall of Fame. I disagree, and I always tell you, look at the wrestlers who are on stage that are crying like a baby and just so happy as far as being honored. Cindy Lauper was so important for WrestleMania 1, the rock and wrestling connection. She did a lot more than people, I think, understand. Younger fans out there, I totally get why you wouldn't know week in and week out what was being done, what she was doing. But even last week when you hear Oprah, you know, interviewing Hogan and, and she's, what did Oprah bring up? Oh, how is it to go to the Grammys with Cindy Lauper? This, she did a lot. But it was this week in 85 that she had the infamous Piper's Pit with Roddy Piper and Captain Lou Albano, which would set up the war to settle the score. 
Time after time, we try to get Cindy Lauper to come out, and all of a sudden, there's no Cindy Lauper. I do happen to have the album cover of Cindy Lauper, which they are giving to the uh, folks out there. But you know, I'm the kind of guy that I just don't fool around. I'm not the kind of guy just to say something and then don't get it done. You see, when RP talks, people listen. And if I want to get something done, I get it done. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you the female entertainer of the year, Miss Cindy Lauper herself. <laughs> It's a pleasure. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. You look... First of all, I would like to say to you, you look wonderful, Cindy. It's been a long time coming for us to, to try to get you here. Cindy has flown 7,000 miles to come here and see us. And one thing that I admire about you is we both have something in common. We are both number one at what we do, and you, time after time, and the records that you have out, the uh, girls just want to have fun with, with all your... They do. They do. <laughs> they just, girls just want to have fun. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Oh, well, I'm glad to come back. I've been in Europe. It's nice to see all the wrestling fans and the WWE And, um... And you, Rodney, how are you? It's great. I've been in Europe. I've been in London. Um, For, you've been in London, England? Where? London, England, same thing. London, England, same thing. Tell me, who does your hair? Oh, me and Patrick, we do. Where's Patrick? Oh, he's in the back somewhere. He helps me out. Pat, Pat. You look terrific. You look terrific. You know, as, as we were saying, we're both number one in, in what we do. And uh, I'm a self-made man, and I realize that... Uh, through, through the time, you've had a lot of friends uh, help you out, and especially one Captain Lou Albino, your manager, the man who has taken care of you and actually brought you from nothing and taken you up. Roddy, yes, wait, wait. Yes, darling. No, I love Lou, but he's not my manager. A lot of people think that. Wait a second, wait a second. You're not calling... You're not calling... Wait, wait, no, I know you don't, you don't mean that. You're not calling Lou Albino a liar. I know that. He, he's your manager. Dave wouldn't... Lou would never say that. Lou would... Hey! Cindy, sweetheart, how you been, baby? How you doing? Cindy, tell all these people out here how I took you, Cindy, and found you in New York City and Queens, and how I made you a superstar. Tell them what I did for you, Cindy. Lou, Lou, come on. Only kidding. No. No, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. No, no, no wait a minute, Cindy. Tell them how, you tell tell me. how I, I wrote the words for time after time, Cindy. And girls... Lou, you're only... He's kidding. He's only kidding. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Now, you've told me that you've taken, you've taken 75%. You told me that you, you brought her from nothing... Took her from a, telling how, how, how women, Cindy, belong in a kitchen and pregnant, Cindy, that no woman's ever accomplished anything without a man behind her. Cindy, tell him that. Wait, 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 wait Lou. Lou, you know, I don't like that. You're only fooling around, right? Because I don't no, like no. that stuff. No, no, wait a second. This is not fooling around. You're not kidding? Cindy, Cindy, just shut up for a minute, Cindy. Tell him what I did to you, Cindy. Tell him how you... Hold that up, hold that up. Tell him how you came off my reputation, Cindy. Captain Lou Albano, how all women are nothing, Cindy. They're slime. How it takes a man to make One a woman. second now, just oh, calm down. I saw the video myself, and I know what he's done. Yeah, about one second in the yeah, video, no, what he's no, crazy. No, no, no. It was a big segment, Cindy. You wrote off of me, Cindy. Wait a second, wait a second. I saw, I saw the video myself. You can't come out here and tell me that this man is a liar. I'm not calling him a liar. I don't want to get mad. Now, don't get me mad. Wait a second, we don't care who gets mad. I'll tell you something. Just wait a second, young lady. I don't care what you think. Just a minute, Cindy. I want you to be honest. Tell them how I took you abroad, hanging around New York. What? Abroad? Go ahead, 
with Lauper, and you would not even believe what this ungrateful wench said after what you did. I want you to roll it. Show them what she said. Yeah, that's right. Here I am, roving, roving around. Ms. Lauper, obviously, I've, I've, I've accepted your, your invitation to come here. Obviously, for your apology, for your conduct on the last Piper's Pit with the great Mr. Albano and myself, and I can assume that you're being a nice lady by apologizing, and for the people, and especially for myself and Al, just go for it. Apologize? Are you crazy? I ain't gonna apologize. Right. Wait a you're not gonna apologize? You're not gonna apologize for what you did in front of, in front of millions of people? Are you gonna sit here and tell me that after what you did, the way you conducted yourself as a lowlife, that you're not gonna apologize what for nothing? You're on my turf now, Pat. Why don't you lighten up? Let me tell you something. Lou, Lou said a lot of things. He said a lot of things that made my mother cry. My family is very upset. He didn't just hurt me. He said he hurt my parents. He hurt my grandparents. You know, he, you. Very he didn't make me. That guy's been riding on my back. I let him into my field. He knows nothing about music. Nothing at all. But you know what? I'm going to show him that he knows nothing about music and he knows even less about wrestling. Let me tell you something, Miss Albano. I challenge you, you fat bag of wind. I challenge you, you in your own what? backyard. To what? I'm going to get a female wrestler. In one week, I will have a female wrestler. And you can get anybody you want, fat man. You can get anybody you want. And I'll have my wrestler fight yours. And I'll show you that you know You're nothing gonna... about music. You're gonna get yourself hurt. You're gonna get yourself hurt. I'm telling you, you're gonna Can you believe that ungrateful way? Can you imagine that Cindy Lauper just to sit there and listen to that Cindy Lauper? Come on, tell me about her mother crying. You know, Cindy Lauper, you're in disgrace to your mother, to your family, to your grandmother, and everyone involved. I accept your challenge. You got it. You want it. Well, now you got it. I accept it. I don't care about your mother, Lady Lauper. Miss Lauper, pay attention. You're a liar. You're a sneak. You're a cheat. You're a disgrace to your family. If you, I made you. I made you, Lauper. Get it straight. I accept. I accept, Wally. I accept. Got it, Lauper? You got it? You got it? I accept. You got it? That's it. I accept. You accept. Remember, Lauper. I've got it. I'm ready. I accept. Now that was so freaking huge at the time because of the relationship it built with MTV and that obviously would lead to WrestleMania as well. But something else took place at this taping as well. Not even an argue. You can't even say arguably the greatest. It is without a doubt the greatest, most important, most memorable moment in Piper's pit history on the same taping as that Cindy Lauper incident, this happened. Very simple. All of a sudden, we got a bunch of people writing in. This guy here comes, I don't know, maybe comes sniveling to the, uh, sniveling to the people, comes and cries, Roddy Piper didn't give me a chance to say nothing on the pit. Roddy Piper didn't give me a chance to do nothing. 
You want a chance. Everybody wants to be like Roddy Piper. You want a chance. You want a chance to say something, brother. I'll tell you what, man. Here you go. Take the little microphone. There you go. There you go. Put it in the little greasy paws. You want to do something, then you go ahead. You say exactly what you want to say to these people. You can do it. Just a second. I want you to wait a second. I want to make you feel at home. Before we start, you want to be the big shot. You want to do all the talking. You want to really think all these people. Got yourself a pineapple. Watch you feel at home. Watch you feel like the Fiji Islands. Kind of like the women, you know? Kind of long, frosty hair on top, round on the bottom. Got your pineapple. You want to be a happy person? What do you want, huh? What do you want? Do you want bananas? You want to talk? Go ahead and talk, huh? Go ahead and talk. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You want bananas? You want bananas? We got bananas. Here we go. You want bananas? Have yourself a banana. Huh? This is what you want. You want to talk? You ain't saying nothing. What's wrong, huh? You want to come up here like a big shot? What do you want? You want coconuts. Here I went. I got your coconuts. Ah, I just like that. There you go. Your coconut. I didn't get a tree for you to climb up and down like a monkey, like you want to do. You want to be a big shot? I'll get you a tree next time. You want a banana? Have a banana. What do you want, man? Am I making fun of you? Whoa. No, sir. No, sir. No, sir. Now, just imagine you as a fan at that time 
go into the regular tapings. You know, you see about 15, 20 matches. The be- the main star is beating up enhancement talent for two, three minutes. You might get a great match here and there. You know, that's what TV was at that time. And to be treated to those two Piper's pits on the same taping. They got their money's worth, I think. So now we head to 1986, and unfortunately it was this week in 86 that Kerry Von Erich was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident. A lot of people think that this accident started the chain of events that would ultimately lead to him committing suicide. Um, You know, there's still some debate if his foot was actually amputated. I know for the most part a lot of people believe that it was, but if you actually look at news reports back then when he had his accident, and there is TV and newsprint online covering it. Um, hospital and other places said that his ankle had been fused together. After he passed away, the family claimed that he was wrestling with a prosthetic. So, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody will truly know 100% one way or the other. I tend to believe now that, it, you know, there's no reason for the family to make something up like that. But one thing that there is some dispute as far as when was his foot amputated. Some people think it happened right at the time the accident took place. Some people think that when he re-injured his ankle, coming back to the ring too soon, there was problems with circulation and led to amputation. I don't know. But what I do know is that a lot of people out there don't know the details as far as how this motorcycle accident took place. And when you actually read or hear the details... You know, the extent of his injuries probably could have been avoided. But not only that, I mean, who, what was he thinking? Seriously. I mean, I say that with all due respect. First off, he's on a motorcycle. He's wearing shorts and no shoes. Okay. You're riding a motorcycle with no shoes. (laughs) I mean, that in itself... I know what some people say, it was the mid 80s, it's the South, you know, you get on your bike, you want to just go run an errand really quick. Okay, fine. But, you know, I mean, just, I never rode a motorcycle. I rode a scooter when I was a kid, Yamaha. But I do know that, you know, things get really hot and you have to have protective gear. So anyway, he goes to try to pass up a truck and crashes into the back of a police car suffered a dislocated hip, severely damaged right foot, and again, you know, some reports is that his ankle was fused. Some people have reported it was amputated, but it was this week in 86 that he suffered that accident. It's a, it's a shame. Now we head to 1987. In fact, we could even throw 88 in there. And I got news for you. Marty Jannetty is all over this episode, like three, four different things and unfortunately some of them are not good at all but it was this week in 87 that Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty made their WWF debut as the Midnight Rockers their first match in they wrestled the Hard Foundation for the tag titles and lost obviously a couple of days later they were supposed to do their first TV taping their first TV match for WWF they wrestled they defeated Jose Estrada and Jimmy Jack Funk Unfortunately, that match never aired, and a lot of people will reference Bret Hart's autobiography, and they talk about this big, drunken disturbance that took place in a nearby hotel after the tapings, and they partied so hard to the point that Vince McMahon and WWF fired them on the spot. 
And it's interesting because they were gone for a year. It was this week in 88 at a wrestling taping for WWF in Fresno, California, that they made their return. So uh, they were now known as the Rockers. In fact, I think their entrance theme was different. I know this match is available online. But, uh, yeah, it was this week in 87 that they came in and were fired. And then this week in 88 that they came back. And they've been, well, Shawn Michaels has pretty much been here ever since. But let's get back to 1987 for a little bit. Because it was this week in 87 that the Honky Tonk Man defeated Ricky Steamboat to win the IC Championship. I know a lot of people still think that Honky Tonk Man is the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. I know people of this generation may look at The Miz and others, and it's not a bad argument, without a doubt. You know, my favorite intercontinental champion of all time was the Magnificent Morocco. Uh, was he the greatest intercontinental champion of all time? No, but I still enjoyed his run more than anybody else's. But the reason why this run was important for Honky Tonk Man, he would go on to hold the belt 454 days. Pretty cool. Also in 1987, Taz makes his pro wrestling debut. And from my research, what I could find is that he made his debut for the World Wrestling Council, San Juan, Puerto Rico. He wrestled under the name Kid Crush. Don't know where he wrestled. Don't know if he won or lost. But in 87, this week he made his debut. And wrapping up 87, I think a lot of people probably don't even know this, but Mr. T actually came back to the WWF for a short period of time, and he actually was doing a little bit of refereeing. Usually like a guest referee or, you know, he would be like another enforcer, but they did bring him back for a little bit. So now we go to 1988, and as I said earlier, uh, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty made their return as the Rockers. In their return match, they defeated Terry Gibbs and Steve Lombardi. And also on the same taping in 88, we had the debut of Brother Love. Pretty fucking cool. Have the the Rockers return and have Brother Love debut on the same show? I think it's pretty cool. 1988 as well this week, the Big Boss Man makes his WWF debut. And his debut match in 88, who did did he defeat? Louis Spicoli. A lot of people, I think, probably don't even know. Yes, Luis Piccoli. I mean, yeah, he was enhancement talent at the time, but uh, way back in 88, he did wrestle for the WWF. And wrapping up 1988 as well, No Holds Barred, starring Hulk Hogan and Zeus, debuted in movie theaters. You know, back then, I remember going with my friends, you know, <laughs> Rip. I thought it was kind of hokey as far as the name. I like the movie. I don't remember what the movie critics said about the movie. I do know that everybody that wasn't wrestling fans thought it sucked. They didn't give it any good reviews, but I remember really looking forward to seeing this movie at the time. And, you know, did I like it originally? Yeah, I thought it was okay. I don't think it was as great as I expected it to be because us as being kids and wrestling fans, you know, we enjoyed storylines, but again, we're kids. So the real deep storyline in a movie and a lot of the small talk, we just wanted to see action. And yeah, Zeus was not good as a wrestler. 
Uh, he obviously is, you know, really looked at in a much different way over the years now. You see him sometimes appear on some commercials from time to time. He's been in some, you know, infamous movies and TV shows. But, um, you know, WWF, I think, made some good coin over this movie over the years. And Hogan as well. It was the first big movie for Hogan. And I don't, you know, include Rocky Three. I mean, Rocky Three was very important for Hogan. But he wasn't the star of the movie. This was really the first movie where he was the focus and the star. And I remember the hype leading up to the release of this movie. It was a big deal. And it took place this week in 88. This week in 1989, Dusty Rhodes makes his WWF return. A lot of people say TV debut. No, 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 no. Dusty Rhodes was around in the 70s and even in the 80s. You know, he would do a lot of garden shows. And I still remember the Warner Wolf Plays of the Week. And they would, I actually have some on video, and they do highlight Dusty Rhodes beating up a Samoan, you know, Afarsika. And Dusty Rhodes was always great, but in 89, it's when he made his return and he was the common man. And, you know, the skits are fucking great. You go online, he's delivering pizza, he's a mechanic. Well, look at the plumbing skit with the toilet bowl. Look at that fucking toilet bowl. I mean, Dusty Rhodes, yeah, it was comical. But he came off as the common man, and it clicked, and it worked. The polka dots would come up later on, but it was this week in 89 that he made his WWF return. It's pretty cool. Now we get back to Marty Jannetty. And it is the, really the Rockers also, but Marty Jannetty was the focus as far as the blame. And, you know, you be the judge if you think that he deserved any blame at all. But it was this week in 1991 that a enhancement talent wrestler by the name of Chuck Austin sued Titan Sports, sued the Rockers. And, you know, I got news for you. You know, the bitterness between WWF and Bruno was for decades. And then, you know, they would make amends. And it was nice to see him return to the WWE going to Hall of Fame, and unfortunately is no longer with us. But I think a lot of people forget that Bruno's testimony in this court case could be one of the biggest daggers that Vince McMahon suffered because of Bruno. And yeah, when they did Donahue and they had the steroid scandal and the controversy with uh, Pat Patterson and Mel Phillips uh, Bruno was all over the TV, not giving kind words to WWF. He was on many talk shows, bad-mouthing WWF around this time. But this lawsuit, I think a lot of people don't understand. You know, did the jury, you know, really get influenced by Bruno? No idea. But Bruno's testimony did not help at all for the WF. It definitely, without a doubt, hurt them. Now, for those that don't know the overall synopsis of this, this is pretty much the deal. It was a TV taping for the WWF several months earlier. Um, and what had happened was they were doing a taping in Florida. Chuck Austin, who showed up at the building with a few other wrestlers, said that he wanted to work on the show. And at that time, you know, you got paid maybe a couple hundred dollars to work the show. And, you know, he said that, you know, he was trained and he knew what he was doing. So WWF decided to put him in a match. It was him and Lanny Poffo versus the Rockers. 
and before the tapings take place, you know, the wrestlers usually go over the match. Chuck Austin, in his testimony, stated that they never went over with him, the finisher, or this move that Marty Jannetty was going to execute. By the way, I know a lot of you out there have already seen this match, but for those that have not, it is all over the net. You can find it on YouTube. Just look up Rockers Chuck Austin, and you'll see the footage. What had happened was Marty Jannetty was going to execute the rocket dropper onto Chuck Austin, and really all he had to do, for the most part, was do a face plant. You know, I me, I'm not a pro wrestler, so you know, I just from what I see on TV, that's what it looked like he needed to do. Somehow he got nervous or didn't know how to land the right way, and he basically went head and neck first into the mat. And you got to understand something: Marty Jannetty's weight and momentum performing that move basically drove Chuck Austin's neck and head into the mat. And what was worse was he immediately could not feel anything from the waist down. And he told Marty Jannetty that he thought his neck was broken and he couldn't move. And Marty Jannetty goes and proceeds to roll him over. And then Shawn Michaels climbs to the top rope and hits his finisher for the win. Now, for the most part, no real blame was on to Shawn Michaels because Shawn Michaels had no idea that he had said anything about the neck injury or anything like that. And there's been a lot of dispute in the court at that time. But if you actually go over the case online, now keep in mind, this case took three and a half years to finish. It was this week in 91 that he filed the lawsuit. I don't want to get into the entire lawsuit right now. When we get into the week in history that the lawsuit ended, I'll get into much more details. But if you go online and you read about the case, you know, a lot of people may not even know this, but in the early 90s, Dean Malenko worked as a referee for the WWF. They actually brought Dean Malenko and wrestling mats into the courtroom so they could show how the move was executed the, to try to show that Chuck Austin was careless and inexperienced and he wasn't honest when he said he could do the match. And um, as I said earlier, Bruno came in and testified on behalf of Chuck Austin and really, really dogged WWF. So the end result is that Chuck Austin, Charles Austin, had originally sued WWF for $3.8 million. Now, you know, that's a lot of money. In 91, it's even more uh, substantial because WWF at that time didn't have the revenue that they have now. So what does the jury award Chuck Austin? Now, remember, he sued for $3.8 million. They awarded $20 million to him. They awarded $5.5 million to his wife. They awarded a million dollars each to his sons. Now, I think the logic there is, you know, you know, his wife, you know, not being able to, I guess, sleep with a husband, you know, loss of consortium, I think it's called. Uh, I talked about this and I actually had one or two insurance cases in my office where one of my customers was sued twice from two different or two customers were sued by the same person claiming that he couldn't have sex with his wife because of the injuries to his auto accident. And I'm assuming they gave the million dollars to each of the sons because they couldn't play with their father, you know, do sports and stuff like his father was in a wheelchair. He was, he was paralyzed. I mean, and it's interesting because there are conversations that Marty Jannetty has had online over the years about this case. And there's a particular message board. I don't remember which one it was, but I remember seeing this about 10 years ago. And Marty Jannetty was talking about the lawsuit at that time. 
and somehow an aunt of his or a friend of his found a videotape where Chuck Austin had seen some guru and, you know, did like a, put a spell on him and he was walking, you know, not great. I mean, but he was out of the wheelchair walking and this was like six months after the inst- it's It's some wild shit. But they awarded all that money to the family. What, $28 million? So WWF would appeal and then they would settle out of court for $10 million. But I believe the court ruled that Marty Jannetty was 5% responsible. Uh, Austin was 5% responsible and WWF was 90% responsible. So in the end, I think Marty Jannetty was supposed to pay $1 million or right around that figure to Chuck Austin. And that was even after they settled. Now, if you actually do the math, if WWF settled for $10 million and Marty Jannetty was 5% responsible, that should be half a million dollars. But still, big chunk of change. And remember, this lawsuit ended in 1994. So uh, Monday Night Raw was already on the air. And WWF at that time had to dish out $10 bucks. Now, I'm sure they had some type of insurance. I didn't go that far to see what they actually had to pay out of pocket and if any insurance covered this at all. But, you know, some people have reported that since this incident with Chuck Austin at WWF was more care. In fact, a lot of websites, if you look at this file, a lot of websites have reported over the years that WWF was more cautious on who they brought in and this and that. But without being a dick... I mean, what did I report last week on this show? Uh, that WWF, it was the debuts of Jeff Hardy and, Mar- and Matt Hardy as enhancement talent in the mid-90s. And how old were they? 16 years old. So, you know, think about that. The WWF is a, has to pay that kind of money in 94. And within a year or two, they have 16-year-olds wrestling on TV. So, anyway, wrapping up 1991. Now, I don't remember this at the time. You got to keep in mind, I wasn't even a teenager yet. And there was no internet. And I know this magazine was not sold locally here in New York. But a few years later, we heard about it. I never picked it up, but I did see some of the photos that were in it. But if you are curious and you want to order it, it is on Amazon right now. It's about 30 bucks. Guy has been selling this for ages. He must have many, many copies of it. But in 1991, there was a celebrity magazine that was on sale. It's called Celebrity Sleuth Magazine. Volume 8, issue number 4. And they advertise a lot of celebrities, nude, risque photos, this and that. You know, it is kind of disturbing because Nicole Brown Simpson, you know, the the ex-wife of O.J. Simpson, who... You know, a lot of people feel that murdered him, murdered her. She's in this magazine with some very sexy photos. Keep in mind, this is four years before she was murdered. But in this magazine as well, there were a lot of rumors going around that Sherry Martell was in there nude. Sherry Martell is in this magazine, but she's not nude. She's not topless either. She looks very attractive, very sexy, but this magazine would be very deceiving as well. But again, if you're curious and you want to go check it out, some people have said that Missy Hyde is in this magazine too, this issue. I don't know that to be true. But believe me, after all of these years, 
if topless photos of Missy Hyatt at that time or Sherry Martel were really in that magazine, we would have seen it. I think people would have had loads of jit gel rags already used up, and that just wasn't the case. But still, I figured I'd share it with everyone. Now we go back to Marty Jannetty again, 1992. And at this point, WWF had already fired him. And if you just look at this week in history alone, just this episode, just summarize it. 87, they come in within a week, they're fired for partying. 88, they return. 91, Chuck Austin gets paralyzed. And not even a year later, Marty Jannetty has this incident in a nightclub. So WWF cut ties. Now, it was this week in 92 that he was sentenced for an incident took place in January. Now, for those that don't know what had gone down, back in January of 92, Marty Jannetty went to a nightclub in Tampa, Florida. Name of the place was the Yucatan Liquor Stand. And Marty Jannetty went with a 19-year-old. Her name was Angela Ialachi. And the only reason why I mention her name is because people have actually tracked her over the years. And she's been arrested multiple times. And obviously, the name is legendary because of this arrest with Marty Jannetty. It wasn't just a little DWI thing. What happened was, it was 21 to get into this place. Marty Jannetty got in with her. I don't know if they let her in and they knew that she had a fake ID, or maybe they thought the ID was legit, but she was only 19 and she wasn't supposed to be there. They're in the club, they're drinking, they're getting into it, they get loud, especially her club says they both got to leave. They go outside the nightclub, they're greeted by police, police want to see her ID, she don't want to show it. Somehow she gets into a little bit of uh, altercation with with the police, Marty Gennetti thinks that the officer is uh, being a little rough on her and threw it down to the ground. So he gets into it with the police. The end result is they find cocaine on both of them. He's arrested, charged with assaulting a cop, cocaine possession, resisting arrest, obstruction of justice. You know, some of these were felonies. And she really didn't get charged with anything. I think she got a year probation, but Marty Gennetti ended up serving uh, three months Uh, No, 30 months probation, six months of community control, which is house arrest. He's allowed to leave just to work, nothing else. He had to be piss tested every week for, I think, three months and 250 hours of community service. And it was a big deal at that time. I mean, he got convicted on a lot of stuff. And believe it or not, if you actually go online, I think Marty Gennetti has talked about this incident a little bit since then. But um, it was a pretty big deal in 92, especially everything that had led up to it. Now, we go to 1993. Legendary wrestle crap. Cactus Jack lost in Cleveland. Does that ring a bell to anyone out there? Cactus Jack is missing? Well, in 1993, and I talked about this about a month or two ago, I... Arguably the greatest match I ever saw. I think it was WCW Saturday Night Vader versus Cactus Jack. Physical, like you wouldn't believe. I'm sure you heard it on one of the episodes I've done this year already. Well, Cactus Jack was injured at that time. And they had him off TV for a little bit. And they started doing these skits. Now, this is legendary wrestle crap. Mick Foley's talked about it in his book. Um, WWE has actually talked about this in a couple of skits i think it's even on their dvd like the oh my god like 50 like weirdest bone i don't something one of their videos and they interviewed dusty Rhodes about it now i'm going to share a little audio with you in a moment but just i want to just set this up 
They started doing these skits that Cactus Jack is missing. And this went on for like six or seven weeks on TV. They showed a woman, and her name was Catherine White. That was the name of the woman that they used, news reporter. And she's trying to find Cactus Jack. And week one, she visits a mental institution that was rumored that he was there. But she goes there and finds out that he is gone. She starts interviewing someone sitting at a bench. And you got to remember at this time, Rain Man had come out in the movies and was big and popular. So the guy sitting on the bench sounds like Dustin Hoffman. There's a guy playing basketball and he sounds like Jack Nicholson. One flew over to Cuckoo's Day. It was a piss poor, wrestle crap, horrible, horrible shit. And this went on for weeks and weeks. You have this woman showing at the mental institution. Then she shows up at Cactus's house. And if you actually read Mick Foley's book, he gets into it in detail that they were, he wanted to use his real wife, Colette, in the skits. But WCW thought she was too beautiful. So they decided to use an actress who didn't look as beautiful. They actually referenced one of his kids in one of the skits as Dewey, who is really his son. His son worked for, might still work for WWE. So the whole idea was that Cactus Jacket ends up, he has amnesia. He is somewhere in Cleveland. He thinks he's a sailor. One of the skits, actually, Goldust, Dustin Rhodes, is in the skit. It, it just, it was wrestle crap beyond belief. Now, like I said, this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. I originally was going to play you every skit that aired on television, but number one, if they were really entertaining, like funny entertaining, sometimes crap is so crap that it's good. And I talk about it many times, you know, the original, you know, uh, Broken Matt and Brother Nero, you know, those original skits in TNA, people were saying was the drizzling, drizzling shits. And believe it or not, later on in this show, there is an important moment that took place in that storyline that took place in history. And I have a moment to share. And when you hear it later on and just go on YouTube, you'll see what I'm talking about. You think the Hardy skits early on in TNA were widely accepted. You go look at Impact Wrestling's official channel. Look at the likes and dislikes for what went down in history this week with TNA with Matt and Jeff. And it's one of the skits that I thought was actually so bad that it was good. Look at how many people gave it a thumbs down. You'd be surprised. But again, if these cactus skits were so bad that they were good, then I would have shared them all. But it was painful. And I'm only going to share with you right now the first skit. It only lasts about two or three minutes. And then after that, I'm going to share with you a two or three minute interview that Dusty Rhodes did with WWE about these skits. And he summarizes basically what went down. But if you are into books and you have never read Mick Foley's book, go check it out. And Mick Foley really gets into detail as far as these skits. He hated them. Absolutely just, just could not stand them. But, you know, when they finally find him in Cleveland, his beard is shaved, his hair is, is pasted back. And, yeah, I mean, we saw him in ECW when he was, you know, he's hardcore, he's hardcore. Yeah, shaved his beard too. So we already saw him like that. But at that time, you never really saw Cactus without a beard. It didn't really even look like him. 
But here is the first skit in the series of Cactus Jack is Missing. All right, fans, back on WCW Saturday Night. Before we go to our next match, it was right here on WCW Saturday Night where we all saw the severe injury at the hands of Big Van Vader to one Cactus Jack. Since that time, he was sent to a hospital, sent back home, and then sent to an institution for further observation. We've sent a reporter to check out the condition of Cactus Jack. This is Catherine White reporting for WCW from the hospital where Cactus Jack is under observation. Or should I say was under observation. I've just found out that Cactus Jack is no longer here and no one seems to know what's happened. I haven't been able to get any information from the doctors or the staff, but I can tell you this. This is no ordinary hospital. Apparently, the physical effects of Jack's brutal beating at the hands of Big Van Vader are no longer the concern. What we are dealing with now is a man with serious psychological problems who's left the hospital without authorization. A dramatic new chapter in the story of a man who once was WCW's most fearless wrestler. And the title of that chapter, Where is Cactus Jack? Cactus Jack? Yeah, I know where he is. Wait a minute, this man says he knows where he is. Excuse me, can we talk to you? Gotta eat now. Whopper on 15 minutes. Oh, this will only take a minute. 60 seconds? Yeah. Um... Ah! Increase my blanket. Oh. It's nice and neat. I'm sorry. Will you still talk to us? Yeah. 40.8 seconds left. Um, you said you knew where Cactus Jack is. Yeah. Well? Not well. Definitely sick. Definitely sick. He's not well. Uh, what I mean is, will you please tell us where he is? Cleveland. Don Cleveland. Cleveland? Cactus Jack is in Cleveland? No. Atlanta. Atlanta? No. Atlantis. Atlantis. Underwater. He's got gills now. Thank you. Uh-oh. There's Jack. Jack? Oh, he is here. Come on, Bill. Follow me. How's this, okay? Jack! Jack! You're not Jack. That's what the doctors keep telling me, too, but I don't listen to them either, sugar. <laughs> okay. This is Catherine White for WCW, signing off. And now I present to you Dusty Rhodes, two-minute interview, talking about these skits as well, why they were done, who was behind them, who decided to pull them with no explanation given, and, you know, I'll share one little Final tidbit after you hear this. This is Dusty Rhodes talking about the skits. I always wanted to do movies. I always wanted to direct movies. This is Catherine White reporting for WCW from the hospital where Cactus Jack is under observation. Or should I say was under observation? Jim Hurd, once again, said only Anderson hates Cactus Jack. And if you don't do something with him, you're going to have to let him go. So I wrote a mini movie. Um, you said you knew where Cactus Jack is. Yeah. Well? Not well. Definitely sick. Definitely sick. Not well. Cactus was missing. His wife couldn't find him. You mean he had amnesia? Well, it was more like you know, one minute he was Jack and then suddenly he was someone else. <laughs> Dewey, play nice! I was going to make him this unbelievable character that was so common man issue was unbelievable that came back from the you know from the hobo jungle that's what Hurd wanted and I gave it to him 
Jack, Cactus Jack. Why do you call me by that name? Oh, I see, Swampy. He told you my name was Jack. But I'm just a simple sailor with no name. I'm afraid Swampy's a bit adrift. Too much shore leave. Money with no object. I was spending a hundred grand a day on production. That is Cactus Jack. Who else would call you Bang Bang? I call her Bang Bang because of her temper. She's always firing off her cannons over the bows of other ships looking for a battle. I was having a ball, man. You know what I mean? I was doing my thing. Jack, come on home! I am home. Six aired, and he walked in one day, heard it, and said, that's it, take it off, I don't want to see it no more. I don't like it. Didn't say anything about it, just pulled it off. As you have seen, Cactus Jack. This is Catherine Now just one tidbit I want to add to this before we move on. How did these skits end on TV and how did they try to like justify all of this without having a real conclusion? Well, they tried to play off that Mick Foley never had amnesia that all of these skits were designed to play mind games with Vader, you know, to get revenge. And how they did it on TV, and I remember seeing this, is they had WCW Saturday Night, and Holly Race, who was the manager for Vader at the time, was being interviewed. And I know he was out by ringside with a tag team. I don't remember who the tag team was, but he's being interviewed, if I recall, by Tony Schiavone. And at the very end, Tony Schiavone gives him a box wrapped in brown paper, and he says, oh, by the way, this was left for you by the officers, and Harley Race is like, is this a joke? Why are you giving this to me, cameras, you know, ringside? So he opens up the box, and it's a little miniature cactus plant. Basically plant the seed that Cactus Jack is playing mind games, and he would return, and blah, 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 blah. Horrible, but still legendary wrestle crap. There's always room for some wrestle crap. Wrapping up 1993, we got to talk about Ranger Ross. I don't know if you remember him. You know, you look at the overall story, it is tragic. I mean, you know, he didn't die, but it just, you kind of feel bad for him when you look back at this. Now, he was a legitimate United States Army Ranger, and he turned to pro wrestling. And he wrestled for WCW, but his contract was terminated. And you realize years later that he had no money at this time, was broke and probably desperate. So it was this week in 93, he sues WCW for racial discrimination. And I reviewed the case because the documents are online. Not only was the case thrown out in late 94, but the court issued a judgment against Ranger Ross to reimburse WCW for legal fees. So now just picture this guy down on his luck, no money, and actually has to reimburse WCW as well. Well, in February 1996, he was arrested in Ackworth, Georgia, charged with bank robbery. At that time, there was a uh, person robbing banks on a motorcycle, and he was labeled the motorcycle bandit. And apparently, I guess they caught him on camera robbing a bank and leaving the scene on a Honda motorcycle. So they actually um, arrested him. He spent six years in prison for armed robbery. 
And apparently now he works for a ministry. So, you know, it's good to hear that there's a positive conclusion with this, but you look at it as a, as a whole at that time and, you know, the guy was down on his luck. I mean, it was just, you, know, you kind of feel bad. I'm sorry. Now, staying in the same tone of legal letters, look, last week I played the clip, Scott Hall shows up in WCW. The week before, the curtain call. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, and Madison Square Garden hugging. And big deal behind the scenes for WWF at that time. Major no-no. Triple H fed plates of shit for a very long time before they basically gave him, you know, the opportunity to, you know, further his career and really build. And, you know, we know the legend Triple H is since. Not everybody enjoyed the road to where he is now, and I could not stand the Triple H show in the early 2000s, but still. As I said last week, when you think a lot of people forget that the time frame between the curtain call and Scott Hall showing up on Nitro was about a week. Wasn't a lot of time. So very quickly, we forgot about the curtain call and all the buzz with Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, to be more precise, being on Nitro. They did not call him Razor Ramon. But he acted like Razor Ramon. And it was one week later, this week in 1996, that WWE sent a legal letter to Scott Hall and ultimately would try to sue WCW. Now, the legal letter, very quickly, just to you know get into it a little bit, um, it was, Dear Mr. Hall, this letter will serve to put you on notice of your deliberate infringement of Titans intellectual property rights in connection with your appearance this past Monday on WCW's Nitro show. Having, having reviewed the tape of your appearance, the text of the various statements made by you during your appearance, any explicit references to past and ongoing storylines of Titan sports, it is obvious that you were attempting by your appearance to suggest to, to the consuming public that you and others from the WWF were now going to appear on Turner Networks and WCW programming as part of some interpromotional matches. The entire theme of the program buttressed by WCW personnel afterwards was that WWF wrestlers were going to be wrestling WCW performers and that you were leading a group of WWF talent in that effort. This is, of course, completely false and was intended to confuse the viewing public. To further this attempt to mislead and confuse the public, you stayed completely within the character portrayal of Razor Ramon, a registered trademark of Titan Sports, during your appearance on Nitro. Indeed, both you and WCW personnel never ever mentioned the name you intend to wrestle under at WCW, choosing instead to tell the audience they knew who you were. You dressed like Razor Ramon and utilized the Hispanic accent given to you by Titan as part of the character portrayal. Titan, of course, has no objections whatsoever to you portraying a new or different character devised either by you or WCW, but will vigorously exercise its rights in connection with your attempt to pawn off or suggest to the consuming public that your WCW appearances are the character of Razor Ramon in a capacity as a WWF wrestler or as part of some interpromotional matches involving WWF participation. Accordingly, this is to advise you that Titan has exercised its rights under the contract it had with you and will be withholding future payments from you until this matter is further clarified. Titan re further reserves all rights. It has to take any and all further action as may be appropriate. So, ball started rolling at that time. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, we'll get into further developments as weeks go by and we cover them in wrestling history. Now we go to another incident that went down this week in 96. And I got an audio clip. You know, look, the unedited footage has never been released. I don't think it ever will be released. I don't think it should be released. But it was a big deal at the time. Now, if you follow this show on a weekly basis, you know that it was just a very short time ago, about what, a month, that Brian Pillman was involved in that major Hummer accident that he was seriously injured. Well, this week in 1996, he made his return to ECW TV in a wheelchair. You see his face up close. His mouth still has scabs and scars. He's banged up, lost a lot of muscle mass from being prone in a wheelchair, cannot walk still, you know, still showed up on ECW TV. Now, these video clips or audio is not online. I had to pull it from my own collection. But it brought back memories because I remember when it went down, it was a pretty big deal. And I think a lot of people to this day don't even know about almost the fisticuffs, the fight that took place backstage between New Jack and Brian Pillman. Now, before I set up how that went down, let me just backtrack a little bit. So we have ECW having an event this week in 1996. There's a match in the ring between Rob Van Dam and Mikey Whipwreck. And during the match, Brian Pillman comes out in a wheelchair with microphone and basically cuts a promo, attacks Mikey Whipwreck along with Rob Van Dam. I fucking loved the promo at that time. Did not realize at the time that it was edited, and I'll explain what was edited later on, which caused literally not only a fight backstage between New Jack and Brian Pillman, but also New Jack almost quitting ECW. But let's one step at a time. Here is how it went down. In progress, Mikey Whipwreck versus Rob Van Dam this week in ECW 
Now, at that time, I did not know immediately that this was edited. I think it was Meltzer's newsletter that first informed me as far as what happened. And this is basically how it went down. As you heard that promo just now, he was putting down some of the wrestlers in ECW. And he talked about Sandman being a drunk and stuff like that. But he had also talked about the gangsters, New Jack and Mustafa. You didn't hear that part, obviously. And when the gangsters used to come out for their matches, what music did they come out to? And you think of the group NWA. What does NWA stand for? See where I'm going with this? So Brian Pillman, badmouthing the gangsters, said that they are ends with attitudes. Brian Pillman swore at that time that he was talking about the rap group, that he wasn't calling New Jack and Mustafa the N-word, but New Jack interpreted it that way. And honestly, you know, you look back on it, I don't blame him. You know, I mean, he's done some interviews over the years and have actually brought up this incident and was very, very pissed off. Um, again, Brian Pillman apologized, but still, you know, he did that in front of the crowd. And not only that, you know, New Jack later on in the show had come out and cut a promo. Now, originally the, the story is, and look, I don't have the details in front of me. I'm just doing this, you know, from my memory. But from what I recall, New Jack originally was going to quit, but they had a big match that was supposed to go on later on. And New Jack agreed not to walk out and still have the match later, as long as Paul Heyman would let him come out and cut a promo first. So New Jack had come out, and this audio I don't believe ever hit TV either, came out, cut a promo, basically uh, talked about what was said earlier with Brian Pillman. And, you know, a lot of reports since then said that it took all the air out of the balloon as far as New Jack and the match later on because of the promo he cut. Now, I didn't hear the promo, so I can't say if that is true or not. Um, I mean, New Jack, I, I can't see, even if he said, you know, shit about Pillman and acted pissed off because of what Pillman said, you know, keep in mind, Pillman, sure, we all felt bad he was in a major auto accident and it was cool to see him back, but I think at that time, fans would be more supportive of New Jack over Brian Pillman. I just can't see how his promo could have really took taken the air out of the balloon of the, the match that was supposed to take place later on. But this ended up being Brian Pillman's return to ECW and his last appearance in ECW because, what, what a week or two later, he signed the deal with WWF. Still in a wheelchair, still not recovered, still signed a deal with WWF. That's how much in demand this guy was at that time. And it's it's tragic to look back on it and realize how, you know, early in life he was taken away. But, uh, and you know, a couple other things went down that night that I remember as well. This was the storyline where they were trying to find a new valet for Raven, who he would ultimately end up going with uh, having Sandman's wife as his valet. But Stevie Richards was trying to find someone new for Raven, and that night he brought in Divine Brown. Now, if you don't know who Divine Brown is and what she's famous for, do a Google search. I don't want to spoil the fun. But she showed up. She couldn't even walk on her heels. She looked like she was toasted. The segment was bad, but it was funny bad. And that same night, you know, they were pushing Taz as trying to be a legitimate shoot fighter. And if I recall, I think he had a match with Jason Helton. And I'm sorry if I get the name wrong, but sitting ringside front row was Paul Vollins, who was an ultimate fighter, MMA fighter. 
and they did a confrontation where Paul Volans uh, challenged Taz, and Taz was being held back, and this would shoot, set up a fight a couple of weeks later, I think at Hardcore Heaven 96. Um, you know, the match disappointed. But the build to it, the fans were into it. I, I remember at that time when this went down, and the fans actually were into it. So, wrapping up 1996. Now, forgive me if I'm making a mistake here, but it was this week in 96 that Antonio Noki had the World Wrestling Peace Festival in Los Angeles. Okay, I know that I got that right. Um, and I also know that a plethora of promotions took part in this event. Michinoku Pro, All Japan, New Japan, AAA, EMLL, WCW, and a few others. But if I remember correctly, is this the event where Eric Bischoff took notice of Chris Jericho and decided he wanted to offer him a contract? I think this might be the event. I might be wrong, but for some reason that's, you know, crossing my mind because Chris Jericho was involved in, in this event as well. And like I said, you had wrestlers from every promotion I mentioned and a few others that wrestled this night. And just to give you an idea of some of the matches, Ultimo Dragon, who was the NWA World Middleweight Champion and Rey Mysterio over Psicosis and Heavy Metal, Lex Luger over Masa Saito, Negro Casas over El Hijo del Santo, uh, Atlantis Dos Caros and Hector Garza over Grand Marcus Jr., um, Dr. Wagner Jr. and Silver King, Tatsumi Fujinami over Black Cat, Pearl Aguayo and Park over uh, over Cibernetico and Piroff Jr., Conan over Bam Bam Bigelow and Chris Jericho in a three-way, The Giant over Sting in a non-title match, Dan Severn uh, won a three-way. I mean, this... Jusha Thunder Lager over Great Sasuke. This card was loaded. And again, if I remember correctly, I think this was the event that Chris Jericho got on the radar. I mean, he was already on the radar with WCW. I think this was the event where they decided, yeah, we're going to, you know, offer him a deal. So now we go to 1997. You know, random little thing. If you've never seen it, you didn't know it existed, go look at it. It's online. You know, back in the 90s, and from what I understand, the company is still around to this day. There was a telephone company, and again, I think it's still around to this day, but it was really prevalent in the 90s. 1-800-COLLECT. Because we all still did collect calls and had to pay long distance. And they had a lot of funny commercials. Hogan was in some. Alf, a few others. Booker T actually appeared in a 1-800-COLLECT commercial, and he actually portrayed a boxer. I think a lot of people don't even know that commercial. I don't know if Booker T's ever talked about it recently, but I remember seeing it in 97 and laughing my ass off. I mean, he looked cool. I mean, he was, but it was this corny commercial. He was a boxer. So I just figured I'd share that. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of this show, we had the feud, the storyline uh, start between ECW and the USWA. Now, remember, this was the same time, too, where Jerry Lawler was calling ECW extremely crappy wrestling. Jerry Lawler was in WWF. He was also in USWA. You had Jerry Lawler show up at ECW when I think Raven was on the way out to basically take the focus off of Raven. And Jerry Lawler had an infamous time when he caned Tommy Dreamer in the balls. And they decided to have this storyline creep into USWA. Now, there are a lot of interview clips online. Dreamer cut some great promos in USWA. You had Lawler issuing challenges. Uh, 
Dutch Mantel, who you now know as Zeb Coulter, you know, issuing challenges. They would have matches. You have surprise appearances. It was a little bit later on that I think Vince McMahon showed up at USWA. It was an interesting time to be a fan even of USWA in Memphis. But just to give you a little taste as far as how some of these segments would go down, here's a little clip from USWA this week in 1997 where Tommy Dreamer and Beulah showed up and they caused a little bit of havoc. Here he is, the reigning unified world heavyweight champion. Oh, it's the icon himself. Representing team icon, Dirty Dutch Mantel, here today on Championship Wrestling. One thing, the tour has begun. The ABL Dutch Mantel 97 tour has begun. And I'm not going to be like the previous owner of the belt. I'm going to put it up against each and everybody, except one man, of course, the previous owner. As you can see, the ABL tour is in effect right now. And I don't care if it's Tommy Dreamer. I don't care if it's Brian Christopher, I don't care if it's Doug Gilbert, I don't care if it's Hulk Hogan, I don't care if it's Bret Hart, it don't make me no never mind. But let me tell you one thing, and Dreamer, let me tell you something. You're talking about extreme championship wrestling, well, you know, why don't you bring your big buddy Sandman with you, having that the king has just come out. his head with a beer can and cut himself up. That's not extreme to me, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think this is my interview, and I think he should be escorted out. Security should take him off right now. Obviously, he's not aware of the ABL tour. Anybody but Lawler. Did you know that? That's hey, yeah, I know. I've heard you say anybody but Lawler until I'm sick of it. You can mention names like Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair or anybody you want to. But, yeah, just shove it over here, Dutch. Let me just tell you the only reason I'm out here. Because, you see, I know, I know I'm not getting a shot until I go through Rod Price. I've already seen that in black and white. But what the problem is, Dutch, the problem is, yeah, why don't you step out of the way, idiot? You know what? You are useless out here. Totally stinking useless. Now, let me tell you something. The only thing you're doing, Dutch, and it's very obvious to me and it's very obvious to everybody else, you're putting this belt on the line against Tommy Dreamer, and what's going to happen is Tommy Dreamer, and I know this from experience, is going to kick your hairy butt all over the building. Yeah, he will kick, yes, he will. He will kick your butt all over the building, and then you will lose that belt, and then I'm going to have to go back to that extremely crappy wrestling and get my belt back from Tommy Dreamer. Let me say something right now. You think Tommy Dreamer can beat me? You know, you think he can beat me? Tommy Dreamer thinks... I know he can beat you. Okay, I guess I'm the only one who thinks I can win. Well, you didn't think I could beat you, Lawler, and you I didn't did. Beat me, Dutch well, I, I got it, don't you I? Didn't beat me. You do stay Get up here, Barons. He's trying to threaten me. Security, come on out here. I'm going to tell you, if you've got such a problem, I'd give Tommy Dreamer a shot. You wouldn't even do it. You've oh got Tommy Dreamer. Dreamer has come out. Oh, God. Dutch has been thrown into the ring, and the king is on Dreamer. It's a three-way brawl all of a sudden here at USWA Wrestling. Tommy Dreamer has arrived here today on Championship Wrestling and coming out after Dutch Mantel and Jerry Lawler, and now we're getting some help Thank goodness, here. the locker room is clearing. Tony, I knew this was going to happen, Tony. I was afraid this was going to happen. Dreamer is in on Lawler. They're, with, they're holding Dutch back. This is all the way out of hand. We need more people out here. The locker room has emptied. 
Once again, Tommy Dreamer has made his presence known here in the USWA. Over there, in the, engaged in a big brawl with Tommy Dreamer, his Dutch Mantel. Jerry Lawler trying to get over there and get a piece of him. Pandemonium has broken loose and the locker room has cleared out. Yeah, Tommy Dreamer came out with Beulah McGillicuddy, his partner from ECW. Okay, good. She's got him out of the ring. Hopefully, just get out of here. Oh, here comes Dutch again. They're taking it to the crowd. This is going to be a dangerous. Everybody, get out of the way. Tommy Dreamer and Dutch Mantell are in the crowd. We need to get some extra reinforcements in here. This should not be happening. Move back over here, please. All right, this is going into the crowd. This is getting ridiculous here. We need more security immediately. Come on, we need more security. Tommy Dreamer wreaking havoc here in the USWA, coming in like a bat out of hell. We're trying to get them out of here. Dutch, Taking get out of here. Dutch. Oh my, Dutch has picked up shoe, baby. He's got Dreamer around the throat. Dutch Mantel has shoe, baby, around the throat of Tommy Dreamer and is dragging him around the floor here at the USWA Auditorium. This is ridiculous. All right, we need to get this stopped. This is getting totally out of hand. Oh, oh my goodness. James Beard has just taken a real Tommy big shot Dreamer to the forehead. James Beard. All right, that's it. Somebody get... Beulah, get, get him out of here. I'm getting out of the way. Oh, now Tommy Dreamer high-fiving the fans after going in the middle. Oh, Dutch Mantel is back Dallas out. back out here. Nails Tommy Dreamer with that shoe baby, the whip of Dutch Mantel. And once again, they are tangled up in a big brawl. Several guys out now trying to break him up. Thank goodness they got James Beard out of here. Uh, this is just not, uh, totally out of hand. Uh, I tell you, this Tommy gonna... Dreamer is a madman with his partner in crime, Beulah. Wrapping up 1997, remember Ludwig Borga? He was in WWF mid-90s. By this time, he was gone. It was this week in 97 that he had his one and only MMA match in his career. He lost it and lost it in less than a minute. It took place at UFC 13. And who did he actually lose this match to? None other than Randy Couture. 1998, Jerry Sags, the Nasty Boys, sues WCW, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash, claiming that he has a career-threatening neck injury. Now, I'm sure a lot of you over the years have heard about the infamous incident. Some people call it the shoot incident, where um, Jerry Sags actually uh, legitimately started wailing on Scott Hall, broke his tooth. I don't know if you ever heard that story. Well, basically, just to summarize it, and I do have an audio clip in a moment. This is uh, Scott Hall talking about what went down. But Jerry Sags had claimed that he had a bad neck and were doing a house show in Shreveport, Louisiana, I think in January of 97. Before the match, Jerry Sags asked Hall and Nash to take it easy with him, but he claims that Scott Hall hit him with a chair and, you know, injured his neck. And it, it was a big, big incident at the time, especially in the dirt sheets, I remember clearly. Um, I don't think he won the case, if I remember. But Scott Hall, when he did a shoot interview, I believe with uh, our video, talked about the incident. 
and a half of you right now, uh, Scott Hall's comments, you know, it's only about six and a half minutes long, but I think it pretty much paints the picture as far as what went down. And it's interesting. And Scott Hall is always entertaining doing interviews. So here's Scott Hall in his own words of what went down with him and Jerry Sags. Well, one of the things that happened that started a lot of the grief was Kevin and I got paid real well when we came in. And a lot of guys who were there um, took pay cuts. And not because of us, and we didn't know anything about it. But some guys were making like 350 grand a year, and they came to us, and they weren't working. Back then, they didn't even run house shows because they couldn't. They couldn't draw. And uh, so they said, we can't give you 350, but we'll give you 300. So a lot of guys agreed to it. Apparently, the Nasty Boys agreed to take a pay cut. And when they bitched about it, the way I heard it was Terry Taylor said, well, you know, Hall and Nash get all the money. So right away, we got some heat. Right. And we get heat anyway. It's just, I get heat anyway. I don't care, you know. I, I like it, you know. But so we're heat-seeking because we're obnoxiously happy. You know, we are, we're walking around smiling and laughing because we get paid and we don't care who knows it. And so what happened was, and I've known them forever. I knew them when they broke into Brad Rangers' camp in Minneapolis. And I consider them good friends, and I still do. But it was and what happened was, we were told to hit the ring. We're somewhere, and they're wrestling some Mexican wrestlers. And we're, me and Kev are supposed to hit the ring and, and lay them out with chairs. So I always go first because I'm faster than Kev. So I slide in with the chair. I straddle one of the Mexican guys who's down, and I waffle Sags with the chair. And, and, and when I hit swing a chair, I swing it. Uh, to me, it's like, don't ask me to hit you with a gimmick because I'm going to hit you. I'd rather not do it or I'm going to do it. And I'll take it the same way. Right. right? I, don't, I don't do the end. Eh, I send it. So I hit him. I didn't know that I'd potatoed him. He rolled out of the ring and he had his back like this. And I thought he was feeding me. I almost hit him again from inside the ring to the floor because I thought he wanted another one. Because before we went out, Nas went, Let, make sure you lay it in. Lay it in. <laughs> so... What happened was, now he comes back and he's got a big goose egg on his head. And as and he's like turning a corner, and I'm sitting there talking to Kev, and I said, oh, Kevin, I said, I potatoed sags, man. I said, I am so happy, because I guess he was delirious, and I thought he was feeding me for a second one, but I didn't do it. And I said, man, I am so happy I didn't hit him again. I said, I almost hit him again. I was kind of doing a nervous laugh. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, Sags turned a corner with a big goose egg, and he sees me and Kev going, <laughs> And he's thinking, they're taking my money. Now they're taking the liberties with me. That guy potatoed me on purpose, and he thinks it's funny. This is the way I perceive that he perceived it, because I've known him a long time. And so then, now we're in some other town. We're in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, something like that. And it's, a, it's, it's Ming and Barbarian, Nasty Boys, and me and Kev. And like one of those cluster six-man... To be three tag team deals. Yeah. And the finish is kid who'd wrestled earlier is supposed to run down, throw us a gimmick. We're supposed to knock everybody out, keep the belts. Now kid got injured, so he doesn't come down. So now it's time to go home, and there's no kid. So we're going, what is going on? Now it's really getting out of control. So the nasty boys start throwing furniture in the ring. So they throw. Sags goes stomping down the steps, throws a plastic chair in the ring, comes stomping back up the steps. Now I pick up the chair. You threw it in the ring, you dummy. Yeah. So I pick it up. He comes walking in, looks right at me. I got the chair like this, and I did like 
like Sabu does, like Kevin Sullivan does, it's a plastic chair. He's looking right at me. I think he's paying attention. So I push the chair at him like that, and it hits him, and it rattles, and people go, ooh. By this time now, Ming is hitting me, you know, because we're the heels, and now there are other two teams who are like babyface. So Ming's hitting me with working shots, and Sags is drilling me with live rounds. But see, he's stiff anyway, so yeah. I don't really think anything of it. He's like, bam, I'm going, whoa. And then Ming's hitting me with the working thing, and then bam, I'm going, man, wow. Finally, I look at him, and I realize he's raging. He's mad. He's seriously mad. So I just pushed him away. Like, what's your problem? He knocked my tooth out. Did he really? I lost a tooth, but he knocked it out into the fifth row. And it punctured my cheek, and you know, your mouth is so filled with bacteria that my face was like this, and instantly. So I turned back around, you know, now, blah, 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 it's over, you know, and then we finally get them out of the ring. I'm standing there, me and Kev got the straps, we're standing there, I turn around to Kev, and I go, Kev, is my face all messed up? He goes, what the F? And I said, it's sags, man. And Kev goes, marches back to the locker room, picks up Sting's baseball bat, and he goes, say the word, and he's dead. And I said, Kev, he thinks he's right, man. He thinks he's right. Because he thought that I was doing, that I was taking liberties with him again. Because Kev was going to kill him. Kev walked in there and just swung the baseball bat right above his head. I said, you want to find out who's got stroke around here, you mother effers. And, then, you know, so I go to the hotel. We're all going to go out and party in Baton Rouge that night because it's a sweet little party town. All the Mexican boys, Ray Mysterio and Hoobie and Conan, they all come to my room and Kev. And I'm sitting there with this, my face real sore, and I can't laugh because it hurts. And they all go, come on, let's go out. I'm going, screw you. I ain't going anywhere like this, you know. And, <laughs> you know, and uh, they... So Bischoff calls my room that night, and he goes, hey, God, I heard what happened, you know, oh, my God, he goes, you know, he's fired, he's fired, like, I'll fire him instantly. I said, man, don't fire him. I've known him 20 years. I said, he's got kids. I said, I don't want to work with him anymore, but I said, don't fire him. And, you know, that was, and I think what happened was he ended up sitting at home for a long time, and he got paid. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen him since then, you know, and it was just, it was, it was just something that happened, you know, it wasn't. I didn't intend to, for that to happen to him, and he intended to hurt me, which was wrong. I mean, it, the way I look at it is, if you had a problem with me, you should took it. You should have fought me in the locker room. Don't don't hit me with live rounds in the ring when I'm giving you my body. I mean, I'm leaning my face out there, and he's hitting me with everything he has. And when you're supposed to be that mad, like you can lift a car off a baby and stuff. Yeah. One thing I'm proud of: this dude's hitting me with everything he got, and he can't even knock me out. But that's what happened. This week in 1999, Owen Hart is laid to rest. And it was a bad week for WWE as a whole. Not only, obviously, the tragic passing of Owen Hart and uh, the funeral, but another news report I'll get into in a moment. But last week's episode, episode 21, I put together a nice little montage of not only news reports covering the passing and funeral of Owen Hart back at that time, but the Larry King Live interview with Brett and Martha Hart. And I tell you, I was surprised at how many people had never heard that interview before, but the amount of people who really criticized Martha Hart saying that she's changed her tune over the years. And quite honestly, you have to give her a pass in that interview. That appearance on Larry King Live was hours after the funeral, and it was less than one week after he was tragically killed. So, you know, you're in shock. I mean, we can't relate to something like that. So, honestly, I would give her a pass, for sure. And also, in 1999 this week, 
Rena Marrow, Rena Lesnar, you know her better as Sable. She filed a $140 million lawsuit against WWE. Now, originally, I was going to spend about 10 minutes on this because back in 1999, websites, uh, Meltzer did an excellent synopsis about this lawsuit. Um, I was going to spend about 10 minutes getting into the real big juicy details of it. But as you will hear a little bit later, you'll understand why I'm cutting back the uh, conversation on this to about two minutes. And I'm going to share with everyone a three-minute audio highlight of Rena on one of the tabloid TV shows. Right after this lawsuit was filed, she was all over TV talking about this lawsuit. And quite honestly, this 24-page lawsuit can be summed up in about three minutes. Sexual harassment. She wasn't a wrestler the way she was treated. She wanted to own the rights to the name Sable. But more importantly... Um, even though this was a major, major news story at that time, and it didn't help, obviously, with the tragic passing of Owen Hart literally a week before. This lawsuit was settled uh, two months later. They actually settled the lawsuit, and I think a lot of you out there may forget that in less than four years later, she came back to WWE and she played the character of Vince McMahon's on-screen mistress. She played his mistress. So I know I probably should have told you that after this couple of minute clip, but the reason why I'm bringing it up beforehand is as you're hearing the details of this lawsuit, keep in mind that not only was it settled two months later, but think of all the things that she's alleging and she comes back four years later to play a mistress. Yes, it's just a character, but I just found that very, very interesting. The way that she alleged she was treated and portrayed in the locker room, yeah, sure. I mean, the money was great, and sure, WWE could have made guarantees four years later that what happened in the locker room and on TV before will not happen again. Still, nonetheless, we still find it interesting. So here's Rena talking about her lawsuit against WWE. Demands to expose her breasts, voyeurism, even threats of being beaten or disfigured. And now Rena sits down for the first time to talk about her $110 million lawsuit against the WWF with me and our Entertainment Tonight cover story. Well, the next step for us in this lawsuit is uh, they're going to be deciding who owns the name Sable. When her legal bout with the World Wrestling Federation begins, Rena Merrill will fight for the right to use her professional moniker outside the ring. As of now, the name Sable is owned and controlled by the WWF. If it's taken away. I think it's just the name. I think uh, Rena Merrill is who I am. But the battle for her name is only the first round of Rena's $110 million lawsuit against her former employers. She claims the management of the WWF sexually harassed her and looked the other way when male wrestlers did the same. What happened inside the locker room? We had men poking holes in the wall so they could watch us dress. Rena claims she was even asked to expose her breasts during a live match. When she refused, she says her work environment suddenly grew hostile. On several occasions, I was physically threatened by not one, but many of the other female wrestlers. Uh, even to the uh, extent of one of the wrestlers telling me that they were going to 
bite a hole in my face and disfigure me so I would not have any career. Was it when you started to speak your mind and try to get a voice and it was in retaliation to that? I, I can't really say anything about that. I will say that the last time I was a part of the World Wrestling Federation was the day that I picked up my belongings and they were smeared with human feces. That to me was the last straw. Despite her refusal to bare her body for the WWF, Rena has posed nude for Playboy magazine twice and is on the cover of the September issue. You've already taken your clothes off for Playboy. Sure. So what's the harm, I guess, for doing it on television? Well, there is a huge difference in posing for a magazine to have my top ripped off in front of a national audience, in front of a, a live audience including children that are sitting in the front row. I felt like it was totally inappropriate. We'll soon see if the court agrees. Until then, Rena says she is ready for a fight. I'm going to stand my ground. I know what my rights are, and I know that I was violated. And I'm, I'm going to stand up and say, enough is enough. ET contacted the WWF today, and they gave us this response to Sable's lawsuit. Quote, the WWF has never asked a performer to do something that they were uncomfortable with and would respect any concern voiced by the performer. And 2000, WCW falling fast. And you realize at that time that less than one year later, they'd be out of business. Well, this week in 2000 on Nitro is just one of hundreds of examples as far as why fans just tuned out. You can't insult their intelligence to this point, and the age demographic is not what it is these days. So to set this up, we go one week earlier. Monday Nitro last week, you had uh, segments involving Kevin Nash, Jeff Jarrett, and Ric Flair. Ric Flair's heavyweight champion. The end result is, is that Kevin Nash, who has the powers of the GM, strips Ric Flair at heavyweight title, and Monday Nitro last week closes out with Jeff Jarrett as the heavyweight champion. So one week later, this week in 2000, Nitro opens up with Kevin Nash and Ric Flair in the ring. Kevin Nash apologizes to Ric Flair, saying that he should have never been stripped the week before. He's the rightful champion. Kevin Nash gives the belt back to Ric Flair. Cool, right? Well, later on in the night, they set up a match between Ric Flair and Jeff Jarrett. And sure enough, more clusterfucks. Ric Flair is pinned. And for the second week in a row... Monday Nitro closes out with Jeff Jarrett as your heavyweight champ. So Ric Flair had the belt less than, what, two hours? Wrestle crap. <laughs> now, you know, a moment that obviously was not great at the time, but it was absolutely necessary to help turn the life around for Eddie Guerrero. It was this week in 2001 that WWE sent home Eddie Guerrero um, from the Raw show for being in no condition to perform. And because of just him being really, really addicted to painkillers and just totally out of it, uh, he would go into rehab. He would be out of WWE for a little while. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a big redemption story at the time. And keep in mind that when Eddie had passed, he was clean. But obviously, you know, the, the wear and tear on his body from medicinal aids and wrestling took its toll. But it was this week in uh, 2001, you know, they sent them home. No condition to wrestle. It's a shame. 2002, just very quickly, you know, we had uh, the NWO in the WWE. 
And uh, we were surprised to see that Shawn Michaels would be the latest member added to the New World Order. Didn't last all that long because, as you will hear probably about a month from now, uh, Kevin Nash had that infamous quad tear and uh, the NWO soon would be no more. But also this week in O2 on Monday Night Raw, something else took place. We had Steve Austin wrestling Ric Flair in a pure wrestling rules match. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because this ended up being Steve Austin's last match on Raw. Because as you will hear on episode, what, 24, we will be covering it. Steve Austin would walk out on WWE. 2003. Big, big surprise on SmackDown, the tapings in California. Kurt Angle returns to TV following neck surgery only after three months of rehab. Now, remember, at this time, all the news reports were that he was going to be out for at least a year. And, yeah, that was not just storyline. That was real. Uh, his neck surgery he, he needed would keep him out of action for at least a year. So, instead, he goes for an alternate surgery where they just remove the neck spurs and they remove, I think, parts of the uh, damaged discs. So instead of having a year off, his rehab was just three months. So we got Kurt Angle back on TV, three months rehab. Motherfucking machine at the time. 2004, TNA tapes his first ever episode of Impact. Now, as we covered in the previous weeks, they were doing the weekly pay-per-views for nine ninety-five, which obviously ended up not working out all that well because you basically, look, I'm not going to cover that again because this is this week in history and we try to focus just on this week, but just a synopsis. You wanted fans to pay 40 bucks a month to just watch your content and follow storylines. So for a lot of fans, seeing TNA on Fox Sportsnet, was really the first time that they actually ever saw TNA. And this week was their first ever taping of Impact for television. And they also introduced us to the six-sided ring. I think a lot of people think that when TNA first debuted on the pay-per-views that it was a six-sided ring. No, they actually debuted this when they came to regular television. Now, you know, obviously, I think we covered it a week or two ago uh, because it happened at that time. Fox Sportsnet and TNA would only last for about a year. Uh, their their contract was not re- renewed, and um, but still, uh, this this was a good year for TNA, in my honest opinion. And you look back at some of the matches for the first ever Impact. For those that are curious, uh, you had let's see, Team International, Amazing Red, Sunjay Dutt and Hector Garza over Team Canada, which was Petey Williams, Eric Rude and Bobby, uh, Eric Rude, Eric Young, excuse me, and Bobby Rude. Abyss over Shark Boy. I remember those matches for some reason. America's Most Wanted over Kid Cash and Dallas to win the NWA tag titles. And in the main event, AJ Styles defeating Chris Sabin, Elix Skipper and Michael Shane to earn a TNA X Division title match. 2004, and I teased this at the very beginning of this episode, Vince McMahon appeared once again on TSN's Off the Record with Michael Landsberg. Now, I know probably about, what, two months ago, we played the previous interview that he had done there uh, several years before. And if anybody has that interview fresh in your mind, as I said earlier, pay very close attention to this interview. The demeanor 
the attitude, the just the total professionalism of Vince McMahon drastically changed from previous interviews. And it wasn't just Landsberg. It was Costas and other places. And um, at this time as well. And a lot of people will still talk about it to this day. 2004 felt like a transitional year for WWE. I mean, ratings were nowhere near. I mean, look, Monday Night Wars, obviously, you know, wrestling was on fire. But after WCW went out of business and after the real big buzz of 0203, I mean, there was some concern as far as ratings, creative, uh, who's main eventing, people walking out, no longer in the company. And a lot of people will also, to this day, talk about the championship reigns of Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. And as you will hear in this interview, Vince actually talks about those two guys. And unfortunately, you know, they're no longer with us. But I find this interview fascinating after all of these years, especially when they talk about steroids. And you'd be very surprised of Vince McMahon's views on steroids. Very, very surprised. So here you go. Sit back, relax. This is about 25, no, about 35 of the 50 minutes that were recorded at that time. Vince McMahon on TSN Off the Record with Michael Landsberg, 2004. Every three or four years or so, we hook up kind of like uh, an OTR leap year with this man. And anyone who has seen the shows knows that they are intense and unpredictable. Anyone who knows boxing knows that Ali Fraser, the third one, was the very best. Vince McMahon, nice to see you. Thank you very much, Mike. So, are you ready to have some fun? Sure, Why'd always. Why'd you screw Brett? Why'd I screw Brett? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's go. The biggest star ever uh, in the history, I think, of your sport, certainly in terms of the contribution that he has brought to the bottom line, might very well be Stone Cold Steve Austin. Certainly, um, he probably made you more money than anyone else. You may have done the same with him. Let me ask you this. His contract has expired. He's now at home in Texas. Why is he not on your roster? Um, well, Stone Cold can't physically compete anymore. Uh, and we've known that for a while. Uh, and Steve is one that if he really can't contribute, then he doesn't want to be on the sidelines. He doesn't want to be thought of as less than what he was. This is really Steve's decision, uh, not mine. But isn't part of it that he wants to be thought of as Stone Cold Steve Austin away from wrestling? And you guys are, are in dispute right now over, over the name. Uh, he wants the rights to use his name, and you guys haven't come to an agreement yet. Is that true? Uh, well, without Steve being a, you know, a contracted uh, a performer, you know, then when you're a contracted performer, you have lots of rights and privileges and things of that nature. But as a public company, they, we own the IPO, the intellectual property known as Stone Cold Steve Austin. He owns Steve Austin. So, uh, again, when he's not, you know, it's important for us to protect uh, that intellectual property in terms of Stone Cold Steve Austin. And naturally, he would like to be able to take that and do what it whatever he would want to. And, and that's what happened with The Rock as well, right? And you did come to an agreement, right? Where he actually bought the right to use his name, The Rock, from you. No, that's not true. Okay, that's hey, Vince, don't tell me about your business. I know what's going yeah, on. Know, he brought right? the name from you. <laughs> no, and don't correct me, Vince. <laughs> I know. No, that's not what happened, actually. But we did give Rock a license to use the name The Rock uh, for Hollywood and things of that nature. But, Stone uh, Cold, I made a statement. Is, is it true that probably Stone Cold made your company more money than any performer ever? I would. I, I think that's definitely the case. His success at one time was unbelievably staggering. No question about it. So does he, does he deserve a certain loyalty because of that, given what he brought to the... Especially at a time when, you're, when your company was, was uh, actually below WCW, because you did the show at that time, mm -hmm. and then eventually, within a year and a half, you were kicking their butts, at least in a huge part, because of Stone Cold. 
Well, certainly Stone Cold contributed, but you know, I mean, you know, the the character Stone Cold had a lot of help. I mean, you just you just don't have a meteoric rise on your own in our business. I mean, people have to help you get there, and he had a lot of help. And certainly Steve would be the you know, the first person to tell you that he had a lot of help to get there. So he led the way unquestionably to records that uh, uh, that he surpassed all of Hogan's records and things of that nature in terms of merchandising and licensing and in pay-per-view and live events. Without question, the most popular performer we've ever had. Now you you have to respond to the public, right, to some extent, because sure. because I mean it, it's not brain surgery. You know, the public obviously is what drives every aspect of your company. How much do you have to listen to a public that must be saying to you all the time, Vince McMahon, where's Stone Cold? Well, the public isn't saying that. No. No, the public is not saying that. Because the they've been telling us. They've been saying, you've got to ask them about Stone Cold. Sure. Well, the public would want to have the Stone Cold Steve Austin that they remember. You know, they would want to have, if you're a baseball fan, Babe Ruth playing uh, you know, in his career at the highest level he possibly could. And that's the Babe Ruth that they would want. They wouldn't want the Stone Cold now who can't perform. He has physical limitations. Would you take him back? Oh, I did everything I could to possibly sign Stone Cold Steve Austin. I gave him a tremendous offer. You know, and he has decided on his own to go out on his own. That's not to say that he won't be back one day. The doors are open, you know. But again, this is Steve's decision, you know. And Steve, you know, is is um, pretty strong Does he owe you something, Vince? Because uh, in a lot of ways, you took him back when he was very troubled, and you welcomed him back into the company when it would have been easy. Now, I'm not saying you didn't make money at that point right. off him, but you could have turned your back on a guy that was kind of dirty for a time. Well, he he walked out on us twice, um, and he was forgiven both times, um, and it, it hurt the entire company. It hurt all of the performers when you just walk out like that and you leave everyone hanging. Um, Steve recognized the error of his ways and when we got back together and this last go-round was, was a lot of fun for both of us. But again, the physical limitations that he has, he, he can't compete. So if he can't compete, you can only pretend that he can compete for so long and the public says, well, how come he's not in the ring? You know, you know so there, and there are other um, production uh, aspects of this that you can only go so far with a character that you can't make the money off of in terms of live events and pay-per-view and whatever and he's taking up space now that some young buck you know might have an opportunity uh, for themselves and we'll discuss that issue because obviously it's all about finding that young buck so are, are you saying to us that as the wrestler we do stone cold is done um I, I, yes, I mean, he definitely is. I mean, there's no question about that. That's not to say that he still doesn't have value to our because organization. Because you've used guys in, in, another, in another capacity. Obviously, sure. you've flirted that with Mick Foley, uh, right. you know, from time to time, knowing that he couldn't do what he used to do in the right. ring, but there's still a value because of his charisma. Well, you know, Stone Cold will always have value. And when you mention the name Stone Cold, it is like mentioning the name Babe Ruth in Could baseball. Could he cross over? The way The Rock has crossed over, do you think there's, uh, maybe not with that kind of success, but it, it, do you think that, that he could make the leap into another world? Actually, uh, my whole uh, thought of Stone Cold was one that his future was not in the ring any longer. His future really was in film. Uh, and we had a film written for him um, called The Marine. Uh, and that's where we thought Steve's future w was going to be. And. Uh, but again, it required him signing, you know, an agreement to be with the so company. So he turned it down. So he turned it down, you know. But again, I, I think that in a way, I don't think he can be The Rock, you know. But he was never that type of individual. But I think can Steve do a, a crossover into Hollywood, you know, with the right script? And, and and I think absolutely he could. Do you deal with him one on one, or do you deal with his lawyers and his team? Because I want to compare it to the old days. Because because I, I would imagine you still see yourself as a wrestling guy, as opposed to a businessman wearing a suit. And I how does see, yeah, I do? So you know. so do you get to deal with him, or is it now all about the lawyers and the agents and the whole team that comes in that negotiates on his behalf? Um, I I much prefer dealing with the talent. 
uh, straight away man to man. Um, and naturally, I, I think they should have a representation in terms of their attorneys because you want everyone to look over what it is you're doing and, and whatever and make sure that it's a fair deal and, and, and whatever. But at the same time, when an attorney who knows nothing about your business tries to tell you, well, this guy needs this, he needs that, and these are totally unreasonable requests, uh, it, it sours the relationship. You know, there's no doubt about that. You know, and that was actually the case with Stone Cold as well. His attorney was one that um, I did not get along with at all. I told him so. You know, you know me. I'm a big mouth. If I don't like you, I'm going to tell I you. I believe that, you know? Vince. I do. No. <laughs> I don't think you'd hold anything back. Bret Hart, you visited him, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, tell me about your meeting because I, I've, I've heard some stuff, and I want you to tell me as it relates to wrestling, of course. Um, well, it was really nice to to, to meet with Bret. My son Shane and I did. Uh, Brett was uh, an hour late for the meeting, which is Brett's style. He was watching uh, the Flames, you know, of course we were too, but I didn't tell him that when he arrived an hour late. I said, where the hell have you been, you know? Uh, he said, well, I got caught in traffic, I was a little bit late, you know, I was watching the Flames. So it was really good to see Brett, you know, and, and Brett and I at one time were very, very close. I like to think that we still are. Uh, and but he hated you in between the time you were close and where you are now, right? I, I think he probably did. You know, I don't. Oh think, no, he did. You know, the feel, the <laughs> no, feeling. He did. I mean, this good. is not probably. Right. He hated you. Well, you know what? If you hate someone, I think you have to care. You know, I, if if you. Oh, he would be the if, first to admit that, Vince, that he he could only hate you because you were so close and you meant so much to his right. life, and he felt betrayed by you. Right. And and that's really unfortunate. It was an unfortunate time in my life, an unfortunate time in Brett's life. Uh, and you know what? I'd like to apologize if I could for that situation, but I, I find myself in a situation of look, would I do that all over again? I probably would, you know. So an apology would would not be the right thing to do. Certainly, opening my arms and you know for the company and for for all of Brett's fans to say, Brett, come back in some capacity, even if it's a you know, a one night honoring Brett. It's something we'd like to do. We're, we're contemplating putting out a, a CD like we did on Ric Flair and so forth with Brett Hart, you know, and we want Brett to help us out with that. And that was one of the purposes of the meeting and Brett said he would. You know, Brett's legacy is extraordinary and, and it's part of the fabric of WWE. And we applaud that even though Brett and I haven't always gotten along. And Brett at one time perhaps hated my guts as you say. And it's fair to say that uh, his popularity in this country could never be questioned. He's a Canadian hero, right? No question about it. Yes! I did it! Because I threw it out the first time on the show and I said he's a Canadian hero and you disagreed with that well, because you said he's a WWF hero at the time. And also a Canadian one. Okay. I'm just having fun with you. But it's, it would be hard to start a relationship with a guy when you said, if I could do it all over again, I'd screw you again. Because it was, obviously it was good for business. Well, at least you know, well, not necessarily good for business. I don't know if it was good for business. You look back on it, and it was. You know, because you, you capitalized right on that brilliantly, though. Mm -hmm. the, uh, like the legacy to me of Vince McMahon, more than anything, would be after you walked out of the Survivor Series in Montreal, you turned what could have been a PR nightmare to a huge positive. You built that as a huge storyline. Yes. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, as a flexible human being and a flexible businessman, you have to go with, you know, what conditions are. Conditions change sometimes beyond anything you have to do with them. And you either rock with them or, or you die. So we agree then. Canadian hero, Bret Hart. Canadian hero. Vince McMahon, more in a moment.
Vince McMahon, you are associated more than any other human being with wrestling. Yet you're sitting here, and I actually notice maybe a little different tone in your voice. You talk a little bit more corporate because because now you run a public company, right? right. You have you have shareholders that you're beholden to. Have you changed? Do you like the change? Is it is it important for you to be taken seriously in the huge genre called business? Um, I, I think it's important to be taken seriously um, as an entertainment company, uh, and and we are that. Uh, and we have wound up to be the, the only entertainment company of its kind, uh, still in existence and flourishing. Uh, so I think, yes, you know, from a serious standpoint, it's a serious business. You know, it's also still and always will be a fun business. And it's something that you, you have to do with passion you know, and, and a degree of, of levity. Does it bother you that, that there are people, though, that, that because it's wrestling, mm -hmm. they don't give it its due in the business sense? They look at it and they say, well, it's wrestling, and they don't understand that you have taken your company to places that guys who run major studios perhaps have never gone, but they look at it somehow that there's something wrong with it, it's dirty, that it's valued less because it's wrestling. Does that piss you off? Um, yes, it does. You know, candidly, it does. In every opportunity that I have, I try to correct all of that. So correct me. Well, I mean, I wasn't saying that, sure. but that's what people think. Well, I don't think that's what people think. I think that's what some people think. Fair you enough. know, and and you know, pretty much narrow-minded individuals. Um, but when you, you know, our goal is to be uh, as good as we possibly can be in all respects. We're concerned uh, with our image. We're concerned as any public company would be. We're concerned with our product. We're mostly concerned with our fans. So. And I think that we're closer to our fans than any other entertainment company. We listen to them almost on a nightly basis when we're performing. What do they like? What do they dislike? Uh, and, and of course, the, the, the one sound that, that speaks louder than any others is silence. Because if they don't care, we're in trouble. Amen to that. You know. How's your health? My health is fantastic. I asked that for a question. Not that I don't care, because of course I do care about your health. You're going to challenge me to a wrestling match. I'm That's not going to challenge you to a wrestling match, but I'd be okay because it's fake anyway, right? <laughs> oh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least the result would be determined ahead of time. Right. It would look like you were beating me, then I'd come back to beat you. But my question for that is that if I was a shareholder in your company, right. one of the biggest concerns I would have would be your health and your longevity. Because if, if you disappear, God forbid, mm -hmm. to me, you are wrestling. How does the company survive without you? Well. It survives because of, of my son Shane, my, my daughter Stephanie, and, and my son-in-law Triple H, and the extraordinary corporate staff that we And your future grandchild. Well, yes. Or not your, your grandchild, but your, yes. your grandchild taking it over, right? Yes. Three months old? Three months old. Um, and, you know, there are succession plans built in. You know, I mean, my lifestyle I could, I could kick tomorrow, I doubt it. You know, I'm, I'm healthy as a horse. You know, and bodybuilding is my hobby, always has been. You know, so I'm very healthy. and. Um, I think I have many more years of, uh, of contributions, and I love what I do. This so if is, you were to decide work. all of a sudden, you know what, I, I'd like to do something else, and you walked out the door, who would run the company? Um, well, it would be a number of individuals that run the company, because... No Your kids are watching now going, please say me, please yeah, say I know, me. I know, but, but for instance, I do a lot of jobs, you know, and, and wear a lot of hats. I, I recognize that, that after I'm gone, no one individual is going to wear as many hats as I wear. You know, I mean, and the company has grown to the extent that really it would almost be impossible for any one individual to do that without failing. You know, so whereas in terms of the creative staff and things of that nature and my contributions there, that would be one individual doing that. In terms of the corporate standpoint, it would be another individual doing that. So uh, there are at least two, two people who would do my job. What would Triple H do? What would his, what would his, uh, his role be in the big picture of the company now? Because, I mean, he's your son-in-law. Uh, well, first of all, he's very bright, you know, and has a great deal of common sense and, and good business sense as well. 
So I can't say specifically other than obviously, you know, his contributions as a talent and understanding talent, understanding production, television production as well, and how it all blends together to make stars. Surely he could have enormous contributions that way, which is the heartbeat of the business. Same with Stephanie right now in terms of you know, she's in charge of the creative staff. So Stephanie has been at my right hand for so long and whatever. And, and at, at first when she first came on, I wasn't too sure she was going to grasp it. And then, wow, she just you know, really has a tremendous understanding of it now. And the storytelling aspect of what we do, you can have two great athletes, be they boxer or wrestler or whatever it may be, but if there's no story between them, then the public really doesn't just care. Just men in underwear. Exactly. Now, women in underwear is a different story. But <laughs> men in underwear isn't intriguing for many of us. Vince McMahon will take a break. As we go to break, we, uh, we always ask the audience for their thoughts, and this is for you, Vince. Hey, Vince, how do you plan to beef up the SmackDown roster? It's looking thinner than Hulk Hogan's hairline. We'll talk about that when OTR returns. Your hair looks good, though. Thank you. I got to say thank you to Vince McMahon. Thanks for doing the show, but but also your show and what you brought to our show, I should say, has been hugely responsible for the success of Off the Record because your roster was available to us right off the bat. All of a sudden, guys were talking from the heart, and, and it wasn't all of work, and it was sure. uh, one of the huge things for Off the Record. So thanks for that. It's a good contribution. Uh actually for us as well. Excellent, thanks for saying that as well. Now that we've got the niceties out of the way. Right. Uh, Hulk Hogan, um, I want to talk about this in the next show because this is part one. How's your relationship with him? Good. Goldberg? Good. But neither one of those guys is working for your company, right? No, uh, no they're not. Um, matter of fact, I got a message uh, from Hogan recently uh, without him contacting me personally. Uh, and that was, uh, tell Vince, you know, that uh, I'm training, I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. Uh, he had a hip operation, it was successful, uh, and he's squatting now with, uh, uh, being a co-bodybuilder, squatting now with more weight than he's ever had, and he's ready to come back. Did he say the message really slow, the way he wrestles? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and uh, Lesnar and Angle, did you like the thought of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, that's, you know, when you just when you conjure up the image of those extraordinary Pretty athletes. Pretty good, yeah. WrestleMania number 19. Kurt Angle needs, uh, he needs neck surgery, right? Right. He's, he's quite injured at this point. Neck surgery is not something to be looked at frivolously. And he comes to you and says, I want to wrestle. What would you think at the time? Um, first of all, the, it's difficult for a competitor like Kurt to get him to tell you the truth. Because more times than not, they will conceal injuries because we know that we won't let them work if they're hurt. Um, and Kurt uh, has a habit of doing that and we're trying to, it's an old school, you know, machismo kind of a thing to do and it's like, no, 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 I, you know, I, I can wrestle hurt and sometimes you can, you know, many times you can. But this is really hurt. Yeah, we're hurt. talking, you know, life-threatening injury here. Sure, right. So, so when he came to you and said, I, I want to do it, I want to wrestle, did at least part of you say to yourself, I can't let him do that? Sure, you know, and, and you discuss it with Kurt, you discuss it with his doctor. You know, and you see what, you know, what sort of condition we were faced with uh, and whether or not you should go through with it. And it's always a very delicate, you know, uh, question and answer session you have with yourself. Sometimes you say no. Sometimes you take a chance when someone has so much passion like Kurt, you know, and you try to rule out in our business, you know, you try to rule out, okay, but, but don't do this and don't do that, you know, in terms of uh, crazy moves in which you may wind up on your head, you know, and... Um, actually in, in, in that particular so match. So you look back on that because it's hard not to listen to you talk right now and think, you know what, just didn't care enough about a guy who, who literally could have been crippled for life. When you well, look that, back at it. That's not true because. Why? Oh, well, 
just credit me being a good businessman, even if you assume that I don't care anything at all about you personally, you know, but if you credit me as being a good businessman, I have value built into these performers and these characters, long-term value. I want to get long-term value out of them. I can't do that if they're crippled and can't compete or, or can't in some way be on the show. So that'd be a stupid decision. One of the on problems part. that you have, though, is getting long-term out of guys now, right? Because, they, because the stunts are so great and the sport that people say is fake is anything but fake. And, and, and you look at guys and they come and go. I mean, Stone Cold, what, six years ago, he was on the top. He was, he was selling a million T-shirts right. a month and now he can't wrestle anymore because what you do is damn violent. Uh, what we do takes a toll on your body. There's no question about that. You know, and you know, it um, a number of concussions, which is one of the things we have to worry about all the time. You know, back problems, neck problems, um, things of that nature. It it comes with you know with what you what it is we do for a living, and you either accept that going in, you know, or don't get in it. Because a guy like Brock Lesnar, for instance, you're talking about stars and the value of long-term. This is a guy that, that could have had a huge long-term value, right? He, he was a guy that looked like you built him in a computer. You I said, know, okay, I, I want to have a wrestler right. who's the next big one. And you looked at him and you say, this guy is absolutely perfect. Right. But now he's gone. And one of the reasons is that, that he didn't like the life and the toll that it took on his life. I think Brock's concern was not so much the physical toll that it took on him, uh, the, the traveling and things of that nature. Brock uh, did not like being around people uh, as, as and did what did not, he, how did he phrase that to you he just doesn't you know enjoy that he's really an introvert you know and you'll find a lot of amateur wrestlers really are introverts and, and Brock's an introvert you know, it was tough to get him to be you know one of his problems with his was with his verbal skills in the initial stages because he you, know, you have to be able to speak you have to have a certain amount of charisma you know, and he was just being able to really to grasp all of that when he decided to go play pro football how crazy is it though when a guy says you know the lifestyle is, takes its toll so much on me as, as a wrestler, I'm going to play football in the NFL because it's easier on my body. How crazy right. is that? It's pretty, uh, it's pretty wild, you know, and especially uh, you know, what, what, what he had already put into the business in terms of his contributions and his investment. He was just about ready you know, to reap some benefit from that. You know, he wasn't always a, a box office attraction, and he really was just becoming a box office attraction. So it was... Um, it was hurtful to our company. You know, you, again, you can't make someone perform for you even though you have a contract with them. Did you when he came to you? Yes, it was. I mean, it was like, you, you, you want to do what? You know, and he said, yes, you know, he said, you know, I, I did know that he had an opportunity or was contemplating playing pro ball or coming here when he came out of college. We drafted him to come here. And, and, and I thought that's really what he wanted because he said that's what he wanted. Um, but I guess maybe the, the longing of, uh, of, of his athletic career wanted him to, to try football or whatever, and that's what he's doing. Vince, do you worry that, that you, you throw the bar out there and you tell your guys, let's keep raising the bar, but that bar sometimes is a ladder, and it's a guy like Edge, and he keeps climbing up the ladder higher and higher and higher, and each time he jumps off the ladder, people give a bigger gasp, because you've got to keep going up higher and higher. You mean that literally? I mean that literally. Okay, no, we don't do that. And, and was, was that because you scaled back, because you said to yourself, these guys will literally kill themselves in the ring because it's exciting for them, it's why they got into the business? If you allow, them, allow themselves, they would definitely, unrealistically, put their life on the line. And, and you have to, as a producer, you have to be able to say, wait a minute, I have a vested interest, and again, as a businessman. And again, if you can assume I, did, I didn't care about them, which I do, I've become very close to all of these guys. I'm like a father figure to a lot of them, you know, and, 
and, I, and I, you have to draw the line. You have to say, no, we're just not doing that anymore. And it's a huge problem for you now, given what guys do in the ring, because the guys that, that you were hoping would be your next stars are getting hurt, right? Kurt Angle, right. you know, Lesnar, and you know, Stone Cold, you've already said, is gone now. Right. It's tough to, I mean, if a studio says, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get Tom Cruise, and we're going to have him for the next 40 years, that can happen. But it doesn't seem like you can have a guy now for 40 years, because it no. takes its toll. It does take its toll. You know, and it's important for us always to have um, the emerging star, and, and, and that's the way our business really has always been. And it's important for the John Cena's to come along now, and the Eddie Guerrero's and the Chris Benoit's, who they've who had their their injuries as well in the past, and but yet they're veterans, you know. But now they're they have bright futures ahead of them. You look at two of those guys, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. They both came from WCW. Yes. Was it not healthy at one time to have them at least there to produce some talent that you could put on your roster? Uh, unquestionably, it was healthy to have WCW as a competitor when they were good competitors, yes. I want to talk to you about the pressure that Cena must feel now to be the next star. Uh, WCW and uh, what you were just saying there and uh, lots more. Maybe you wish you hadn't done the WCW deal. We'll Maybe. talk about that when OTR returns. Off the Record with Michael Landsberg is brought to you by the Keg Steakhouse and Bar. For great steaks, good friends, see you tonight. I gotta ask you about WCW. I'm sorry to cut you off from that very Bad compelling man. story <laughs> during commercial. Actually, I wasn't sorry at all. But WCW, you went out and you bought the competition, right? And it's that's obviously a business strategy that that almost every business has looked at. Well, no, I, I mean, I didn't buy the competition. I mean, the competition was going out of business, right? Okay. And Ted Turner, which I never thought would ever happen. I thought Ted would always be a competitor of ours. Ted folded his tent with the Time Warner in the wrestling business, and then it was like, well, wait a minute. There's this asset sitting there. You know, so yes, I acquired the asset. Do you wish that the WCW was still alive? I'm not going to say alive and well, right. but still alive and there. Because one of the things that, that you're finding a huge challenge is you have two television shows now a week, right? Mm -hmm. That you have to staff with, with superstars. Right. And it's tough to get that many. But if the other guys are still competing, you can draw people from their roster. And we already mentioned Guerrero and Benoit. Sure. It is more difficult, without exception. Do you wish, do you wish maybe they were still around? Yes, I do. And because there's talk, right, that Turner wants to come back and wants to get back into the business? I would doubt that very seriously, you know, the, at least not on this level. You know, if he wants to get back in the business, uh, like a TNA, I think it's called, le level, he, certainly anyone could do that. To get back in the business on this level, uh, is the, the startup costs are extraordinary. Uh, and, and as Ted found out, you know, I mean, this is, this is not just a fly-by-night kind of a investment, you know, and you don't always have a return on your investment, nor did Ted have a return really on WCW, so and the cost it continues to escalate each and every year because we invest more in our product. You see more of it on the screen. You see more of it at live events. When you compete on that level, it, it, the cost is astronomical to come into this business. How worried are you about the injection of new talent? Because the SmackDown roster, for instance, most would say is thin, and the ratings, I think, have reflected that. How concerned are you about generating new big superstars that the public wants? I'm always concerned about that. You know. I think that uh, you know, with Eddie Guerrero and John Cena as being anchors, really, you know, and Kurt Angle as well, a healthy Kurt Angle, uh, being anchors for the SmackDown brand, that's a really good uh, base to build upon, you know. And we and we will do that. We'll build upon you know new stars. There'll be a number of them coming out to SmackDown. Well, you're talking about new stars. You mentioned John Cena. How about an old star, Hulk Hogan? You know, I, I would think that um, that uh, Hogan would be a candidate for perhaps this year's uh, Hall of Fame. 
you know, we're going to be out in uh, WrestleMania. Uh, it's going to be in Los Angeles this coming year. So, I mean, I think that... Is it done with you guys, you and Hulk? Do you think as, as, uh, as a guy on your roster? Um, other than the, the exceptional one-off type thing, I, I think it definitely is. Because, again, it's like you, you consider the investment factor. You know, Hogan's a big star. If you bring him back, he's going to want to have a lot of time, you know, for his startup and everything. And it's, it's no different than why you don't see Mr. McMahon, my character, on television anymore. You know, I, I much prefer the other side of the camera anyhow in producing and directing and, and working with talent and motivating them. Because if my character is out there as a talent, what do you, what's the return on investment? You know, I'm 58 years old, you know. I mean, going through the motions of what I would be doing in the ring, the physicality, I enjoy that. But... You know, I mean, what's the return on investment? You get one pay-per-view out of it, you know, and no live events, you know what I mean? So Take us back to Hulk, Vince. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, people want to know, what happened last time? Why did he leave? Uh, Hogan, I think it was pretty basic. He did not like his payoff at WrestleMania and said that was it. Didn't want to do the job? Um, I don't think that was it so much. You know, again, I think it was a monetary issue. He's a businessman. Was he supposed to job the big show and he didn't want to do it? Because he has the reputation, right, of doing what's good for, for Hulk. And, you know, you certainly can't, you, you can't condemn him from the aspect that he's built himself, you know, this massive franchise called Hulk Hogan. But, sure, but he has a reputation in the business of not doing for others what they did for him. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I think that's deserved, uh, unquestionably. Sometimes it's not deserved. Is that I mean, what happens with him, with, uh, or what happened with him with Big Show? I don't recall that incident, quite frankly. It could very well have been. You know, you know I mean, when guys say they don't recall on the witness stand, people just think they don't want to answer the yeah, question. Yeah, I know, that, but I just don't recall. <laughs> Unfortunately, this isn't the witness stand. Right. So Hulk could, be, uh, could have limited representation in your company, but his, his job as, uh, as a big star is gone. How about Goldberg? Um, again, uh, Goldberg uh, had a tremendous impact. Uh, when he came, he was here for a year. We knew that it was a, a pricey situation when he came over. I heard you didn't like his contract from the time you signed him. Is that true? Uh, no, if I didn't like it, I wouldn't have signed it. You know, it was a bit of a risk, you know, uh, as it were. But nonetheless, his con contributions were everything that we thought they would be. So you got what you wanted, what you hoped for out of Goldberg? I think because so. Because he was supposed to be a guy who would really inject a lot of life in the company. Um, yes, and, and he did, you know. And again, it was a one-year deal, and, and we, again, reserved the right to open the door if Bill would ever want to come back, and we'd want him back, you know, to do some one-off stuff. I don't think he... Bill does it enjoy the day-to-day -day aspects of the business, you know, in terms of being on the road and things of that nature. And, and again, it's an investment factor. Who are you going to invest your money in? Someone who, you know, doesn't enjoy it and doesn't want to you know, contribute a full-time schedule or someone, some up-and-coming star who, who, who you can get your investment out of. So it becomes a business decision. See, I'm interested because you, you talk about uh, Goldberg and you talk about Brock, about how they found the lifestyle difficult. Is, that, is part of that because they're not wrestlers? They're guys who came from something else to become wrestlers. That the guys who understand and lived and breathed and grew up with wrestling understand that it, it's not, you know, once a week. Right. It's three, four times a week, and this right. is the commitment you got to bring. I think that's fair. You know, again, I, I think that you know the ones that have the longevity here, you know, are, are the individuals who 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 grow up as, as a child, loving and, and emulating and wanting to be a superstar in the WWE. No, We've got to take a break. Uh, I want to talk about steroids because I, I want to talk to you about how they relate to baseball and what you would do with Barry Bonds when OTR returns. <laughs> Vince McMahon, you don't watch off the record even though we send you our tapes on a daily basis. You don't know that we've been critical of Bud Selig. We don't think he's doing a great job as commissioner of baseball. How many suits you got? 
Not that many. Not enough to be the commissioner? I think you do. I think you're dodging. If I made you commissioner of baseball right now, how would you handle Barry Bonds and the stigma that he has to deal with right now, which is Babe Ruth talent, Babe Ruth statistics, but people look at him and say, eh, he's juiced. Um, I don't know. I, I think that the uh, commissioner of baseball, and it depends on how seriously you take baseball, you know, how seriously you take Imagine he sport. probably takes it pretty seriously. Uh, I, mean, I, I think he should, you know, but I mean, I think that that he, in all likelihood, is somewhat conflicted, giving his back background as an owner and whatever. I, I think the commissioner of baseball is someone who probably loves the sport, uh, loves the game itself, but someone who has impeccable integrity in the past and someone who would look at this from an objective standpoint and do the right thing you know, for the integrity of the sport. And I think that's what the commissioner of baseball really, I think that's more than anything else, more than contracts with networks and things of that nature. I think the commissioner of baseball and all likelihood is charged with that, the integrity of the sport. So what do you do with Barry Bonds? Because, because uh, until, until someone takes a vial and they watch him tested and they say he's clean or he's not or whatever, people don't know what to make of this guy. And, and you've, of course, you've dealt with, you know, the steroid stigma for sure. a long, long time. Well, I think there are a lot of ways to skin a cat. You know, I mean, uh, if you're commissioner of baseball, I think I would certainly call Barry Bonds, uh, you know, not just to the stand, but I would call him to the testing facility and say, okay, no, we're going to test you and we're going to test you on a, for the integrity of the sport and for your own personal integrity. You know, and if he refuses testing, then you take action. You know, if he doesn't refuse and he passes the test, then, then you can say to the, to the rest of the world, hey, look, this guy is everything that he says he is, and, he, and he's clean, so get off his keister. How do you deal with your own roster from that standpoint? From a standpoint of steroids? Yes. We don't test anymore. Why? Um, well, it's expensive which is a bit of a cop-out because I could afford it these days. I was going to mention that. You know, thank you. <laughs> but that, um, no, that it was a cop-out. Oh, but I think the reason we don't test for steroids, we're performers, we're entertainers. You know, uh, we're not cheating anyone. If we're cheating anyone, we're cheating ourselves, unlike baseball or the Olympics or something like that, because when you use steroids, that's an advantage. You're cheating. There's no doubt about it. You know, and if Barry Bonds is using them, you know, he's cheating. I'm not saying that he is using them, but if he is. So... I, we're not cheating anyone except ourselves if, in fact, we're doing that. The problem that you have is that um, if I'm a young guy watching, I want to look like those guys. They look pretty damn good. Uh, some of them do, some of them don't. We, all, we have all different body types and so forth, and a lot of times guys would take steroids not because they want to look good, but because it helps them their injuries heal quicker or whatever. That's up to those individuals and their physician, their personal physician. You know, but hopefully we don't have juice heads walking around you know, uh, and I don't think we do. You calling me a juice head? <laughs> no, I'm not. Okay, I just wanted yeah. to check. No, I'm not. FCC yeah. is all over some guy's ass. I mean, Howard Stern's dealing with that right now. Yeah. Even Oprah's dealing. They're not on you. Shouldn't be. Are you not dangerous enough now, though? Because they used to be the first guy. Top of the list, hit list. There's Vince McMahon. There's the WWE. Well, we were wrongfully placed there to begin with. You know, I mean, you know, think about some of the things we've well, done. But you love that stuff, right? Um, I love some of it. You know, I mean, I, I do enjoy controversy, of course. Uh, and I, you know, I'm a fighter. I, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, naturally, you know, pugilistic or whatever. You know, I mean, I, that, that I enjoy the fight. You know, but as far as the FCC is concerned, we, there's nothing about our show now that's uh, that's really Does that objectionable. Concern you though, because I mean, the thing that WCW, WWF, right? This, right. and then DX, and then Stone Cold, and sure. all of that, and all of the angles, and all of a sudden, you put them out of business, and you guys put a billion dollars in your pockets. So, so it was the danger that made you so special, and now no one's concerned about the danger. Doesn't that well, concern you? You know, again, when you're competing, you know, as we were, we were burning the candle at both ends. So was Turner. It was a question of who was going to burn out the quickest. 
you know, since we understand the business, we thought they would, and they did. Do you miss that time? The renegade? I mean, you, you guys really, I mean, talk about walking the line. You crossed the line all the time. Do you miss sure. that time? Um, no, I enjoyed the time. You know, I enjoy all the times. I enjoy this time. You know, I, I enjoy all the times of my life, whatever it may be. You know, but I think that, I think that we can have a better business, you know, by, by having uh, intricate stories, by having better athletes, by having better human beings uh, on our roster. You know what you're talking like? You're not business. talking like a parent. You're talking like a grandparent, which is a beautiful segue to this email for you. Hey, Vince, how does it feel to be a grandfather? Uh, it's so wonderful. Again, uh, you know, I'm the luckiest man in the world. You know, no one comes close to me. You know, I, you know, again, it's like I have a healthy, you know, uh, a business, you know, that I love and passionate about. Uh, I have family members around me that are healthy and, and in the business as well. You know, I have a grandson now. I mean, it's like, come on, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I couldn't complain about anything, and I shouldn't. 2006, bringing up Kurt Angle again. We were surprised. Monday Night Raw, Paul Heyman had announced that Kurt Angle had been drafted to ECW. And I know ECW's rebirth in WWE... It just as overall was considered a failure or a disappointment, I got to be honest with you. You actually watch individual episodes. There are some awesome matches that took place in WWE's ECW. All right, maybe it didn't feel like ECW. Maybe it didn't have that aura, but there are some great matches. And Kurt Angle impressed a lot in ECW as well. So we were treated to that surprise this week in 2006. 2007. WWE had their one-night stand Extreme Rules pay-per-view from Jacksonville, Florida. Every match on the card had a hardcore rules stipulation. There's a couple of little tidbits from it. They had a stretcher match between RVD and Randy Orton. RVD won it, but after the match was over, Randy Orton uh, attacked RVD, uh, really beat him down, was stretched out, <laughs> even though Rob Van Dam had won the stretcher match. And this was a write-off for RVD. His wife was very ill at the time, and he took time off for his wife. He appeared at the Royal Rumble 2009, but that was it. He would later on to go on and debut for TNA in 2010. Now, RVD has returned to WWE since then a few times, even wrestled NXT, people remember. But uh, it was this week in 07 that he would uh, ultimately be gone for the most part for almost six years, with the exception of one and two appearances. You also had a ridiculous match, Candice Michelle over Molina in a pudding match. There were some good matches on the card as well. Edge over Batista in a steel cage. Uh, Mark Henry over Kane. Lashley over Mr. McMahon. The Hardys over Sh Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin. CM Punk, Sandman, and Tommy Dream over the new breed, which was Marcus Colvone, Matt Stryker, and Elijah Burke. And the main event, John Cena over the great Kali the falls count anywhere. I know you look back at Kali and you're like, what the fuck were they thinking? No, you actually look back at Kali's career around this time in WWE. He defeated Undertaker. He had some pretty high-profile wins and high-profile matches. 2008, WWE signs the son of Kurt Henning, Joe Henning, who you know as Curtis Axel. And also in 2008, WWE uh, had their 513th episode of Sunday Night Heat. That would be the last. 
They were airing Sunday Night Heat at that time on WWE.com. In fact, it wasn't even considered Sunday Night Heat by this time. It was just called Heat. And, you know, I tell you, you go back and you, wow, 500 plus episodes. There, you know, WWE on the network started putting episodes of Sunday Night Heat up. You watch some of it, and there's some great, great skits, segments, swerves, storylines, matches, you know, promos that you may have never seen before if you didn't watch Sunday Night Heat on a regular basis. A lot of people, because it was a B show, they didn't pay so much attention to it. I remember the ratings always being, what, a little under a one or around that time. You know, still, I mean, this show was on from 1999 until 2008. So it was a pretty, pretty big deal. And wrapping up 2008, uh, Federal Grand Jury indicts Dr. Phil Aston on 175 counts. This was the personal doctor of Chris Benoit, who was uh, accused of illegally writing thousands of prescriptions to over 17,000 patients. And, um, you know, remember, this this was uh, all uh, coming out after the murder-suicide of Chris Benoit. And um, he faced over over 300 years in prison and up to $175 million in fines. He pled guilty on all charges and ended up being sentenced to just 10 years in prison. So now if you do the math, uh, I think you could pretty much get an idea as far as when he's going to be released. So there you go. And, you know, I, I might as well mention it also. 2008, the same week we had ECW One Night Stand. Not the one from the Hammerstein, but the one in San Diego, California. Matches from that night, and there was a couple of important moments coming out of these matches. Jeff Hardy over Umaga in a Falls Count Anywhere match. You had Big Show defeating Morrison, CM Punk, Chavito, and Tommy Dreamer in a Singapore Kane match to earn an ECW title match at the Night of Champions pay-per-view. Beth Phoenix over Molina in an I Quit match. John Cena over JBL in a First Blood match. Batista over Shawn Michaels in a Stretcher match. And then these two. Triple H over Randy Orton in a Last Man Standing match. During this match, Randy Orton broke his collarbone. And in the main event, Edge over The Undertaker in a TLC match to win the vacated World Heavyweight Championship. And this match was uh, Undertaker's Sort of send-off at the time. You know, because he lost, he was forced to leave WWE. But the deal is is he was very, uh, I don't want to say very injured, but he had a lot of nagging injuries at that time. He needed time off, and this was the way for them to do it. And believe it or not, if you go actually back and watch this match, it did not disappoint. It's a match that I'm surprised people don't bring up more often, um, this this match between Taker and Edge. It was, it was really good. Now, remember last week we talked about the uh, WWE segment where they had Team Lakers and, you know, what was it, Team Nuggets appearing on Monday Night Raw? Well, as I said, one week later, uh, Mr. Kennedy would be released from WWE. And, yes, that happened this week in 2009. 2010, Wade Barrett wins season one of NXT. And for those who may not remember who finished second? David Otunga. Who finished third? Justin Gabriel. 2011, Awesome Kong 
Karma, real name Kia Stevens, um, she announces that she's pregnant. And because of that, was forced to take a leave of absence. And, you know, to this day, it's uh, it's a real terrible situation. I mean, it, I, a lot of people may forget this. It was New Year's Eve of, of 11 that she announced that she gave birth. But then uh, later said that she really didn't give birth, that she actually had a miscarriage. And I tell you, man, you look back and we have conversations on the other shows from time to time you know, who could have been a major star. And, you know, look, she was awesome. No, yeah, pun intended. She was awesome in TNA and she did great work in Japan. But I think a lot of people really were excited to have her be in WWE's karma, especially this is right smack in the middle of the divas, you know, just, uh, and when I say that, it's not against the women. I'm just saying like, the divas being labeled as divas, we would end up having total divas and, you know, karma didn't fit that mold. I know some people will kind of look at Nia Jax these days as far as someone who's really not a diva. She's bigger. I I think uh, a lot of people need to give that credit to karma because she actually uh, was, should have done that role before Nia Jax did. But Unfortunately, you know, some chain of events happened and we would have karma, what, one time. 2012, Randy Orton suspended 60 days, violating the WWE wellness policy for the second time. Now, before I go any further, for anybody that's wondering, we have any more audio clips? Yes, we do. Trust me, we do. We have more than one, actually. Uh, Now, getting back to Randy Orton, there was some dispute at the time Some websites were reporting that he was suspended simply because he had a very high level of testosterone in his system. Other websites were claiming that he had some type of steroids in his system as well as marijuana. Didn't matter. Uh, He was suspended for 60 days. And at this time, a lot of people were bringing up the fact that back in 07, he was linked to the signature pharmacy scandal. So it, it was a pretty big deal because at that time, if he would have had one more strike, He would have been done, banned WWE for at least a year. Now, people have pointed out over the years that in November of 13, the wellness policy was amended and basically said that anybody who violated the policy twice uh, could remove one of the violations if they undergo a redemption process. It's basically an 18-month period where, you know, they, they're clean and there's a few other things involved. I mean, some people call it the Orton rule, but um, still, you know, it, it's... Look, he hasn't had any issues since then, and uh, he still looks like he's in phenomenal shape. So, you know what? Um, yeah, I mean, look, people make mistakes, but uh, you can't hold that against Randy Orton anymore, in my honest opinion. So, there you go. Wrapping up 2012, TNA announces that they are creating their own Hall of Fame and it will debut at Slammiversary, which we will cover in the upcoming weeks. And the first person to be inducted into the TNA Hall of Fame, Sting. Now, we've had others inducted since then, Kurt Angle, Team 3D, Jeff Jarrett, a few others. But this week in 12, they announced First ever Hall of Fame, and Sting would be the first inducted. Now we get to enjoy a little bit of Matt Hardy. And it's a shame because I wanted to play audio from both. But obviously one 
If you understand the promo, you know why. The second one, you know, because there was so much, uh, I don't want to say music playing in the background, but because it was more of like a soap opera segment than anything else, that it really didn't come off well playing the audio. You know, I could have just played 10 seconds of, I knew you'd come, but uh yeah, you could watch them online, but let's get into the first one. It was this week in 2013 that Matt Hardy did those hilarious anti-bullying promos for Ring of Honor. Basically, he was just on a camera showing cards, cue cards, saying that he's got feelings too. And, you know, it, it was great. You know, I mean, Matt Hardy at this time was not broken, Matt, but him playing around with his character a little bit and trolling the fans a little bit. And look, Ring of Honor fans can be very, very difficult over the years. And they're, they're passionate. I mean, without a doubt. Um, but still, Matt Hardy at this time, I thought, was brilliant with these promos for Ring of Honor. If you've never seen him, go online and go check it out. It's actually pretty funny. And we get to enjoy Matt this week in history again a little bit later. Um, but first, let's wrap up 13. Spike TV issues a press release this week in 13 at uh, UFC light heavyweight champion Rampage Jackson, Quentin Jackson, was going to appear both on Bellator for MMA and TNA Wrestling. And he would debut for TNA two days later. And I remember them hyping this shit up. And, you know, that's one cool thing about doing podcasts for so many years. You could go back and listen to our covering of his uh, signing with TNA and his TNA career. And I'm sorry. I mean, we criticized the shit out of it because they were hyping this up as it's a huge fucking deal. And the fans just didn't care about it. He would wrestle just one match for TNA and Bellator would end up pulling him. And you check out his interviews after this period. You know, as in less than a year, he was ripping TNA, saying that, you know, that he left after he saw how bad things would be at run there. He had no intention on coming back. And, you know, they kept falling into this repetitious mistake of having, trying to have this MMA influence on the company. And yes, I know before anybody says anything, you know, this was Spike TV's decision. It wasn't always TNA's decision. I get it. But still, at the end of the day, this is TNA. It's the TNA banner. They're the ones that worked the deal with Spike TV. They got to own up to it. Most of this fault is on TNA, my honest opinion. 2014, Laura Van Ness makes a pro wrestling debut. She debuted for the ECCW promotion in Vancouver, British Columbia, under the name Jada. She was part of a six-person tag team match. She teamed up with MR2 and Brady Malibu. They lost to Kenny Lush, Nicole Matthews, and Billy Suede. Now, same week, 2014, NXT TakeOver. Charlotte defeats Natty in a tournament final to win the vacated women's title. Now, just to set this up a little bit to explain, Paige was the NXT women's title, but if you remember on an episode about a month ago, JBL, who was the GM of NXT, had stripped page of the title she was the wwe uh, divas champion as well jbl in storyline felt that she could not handle the schedule of defending both belts so they stripped her of the nxt women's title they did the tournament chat and charlotte won the tournament this week over natty 
and became the women's champion of NXT. Same week, you had the WWE Payback pay-per-view. One match on the card, Hornswoggle lost a hair versus mass match against El Torito. As a result, Hornswoggle's head would be shaped bald. He also had another match that ended up being very important for storylines. First off, you had the Shield defeating Evolution in an elimination match, and the Shield would sweep the match. They would uh, beat all three members of Evolution. So now we go to the following night on Raw and two audio clips to share. First one has Evolution opening up Monday Night Raw in the ring. Now, Triple H is already in management, obviously, And keep in mind, this is 2014 where Batista was not well accepted by the fans. Bautista, Blutista, they just were not having it with Batista. And you feel bad for him because of the way he was treated at this time. And sure, in the future, all the wrongs will be righted. But, you know, they were in the ring. Triple H is just absolutely livid at the fact that they lost the night before. And he insists that evolution has to destroy the shield. And this happens. They say it's always darkest just before the dawn. funny thing is they think they've won you all think they won you all think this is over the shield think this is over 2-0 you don't get it none of you get it I don't lose I never lose I win always This will not be over until the shield exists no longer. And that happens tonight. I don't want another match with the Shield. Been there, done that. I'm done with that. I want what's coming to me. I want my one-on-one championship match. You promised me. Dave, there's a there's a reason. I'm the leader here. There's a reason I am the leader here. There is a reason I am the boss. It's because I have an ability to see the bigger picture, okay? Maybe you don't see the bigger picture, but there is a bigger picture in play here that I see, and there is a plan. Understand? I don't care about your plan. I don't care about your plan. I don't care about the shield. I came back. I did what I said I was going to do. I won the World Rumble. I earned a one-on-one championship match, and I won it, and I won it tonight. 
Not sure if you're aware of this, but Daniel Bryan is injured and cannot compete, which means that even if I wanted to, Dave, I can't give you a shot at the WWE World Heavyweight Championship tonight. Even if I did, you'd probably choke in it anyway. All right, I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry. Hey, things are a little tense tonight. Maybe you haven't noticed. Things are a little stressful around here, all right? But here's the thing. There is a plan. Is this how you want to go down? Is this how you want to be remembered, Dave? Huh? You want to go down as the guy that couldn't beat the shield? I'm not going to do that. No, I have never started a fight that I couldn't finish, and I am not starting today. This ends when the shield is no more. Not until I say, when that happens, then you will get everything that you have been promised, everything you have ever dreamed of. But until that time, until that time, no one is getting anything. I understand, and I quit. What? You what? You quit? Get back here! Get back in this ring! What are you gonna do? You're gonna run back to Hollywood? Huh? You're gonna run back to Hollywood when your movie craps out there. Don't come running back to me, cause you're finished. You hear me? Get back here. Dave! But Now it ends up Batista would legit quit for the second time. And it was what? Just one or two episodes ago we played the skit where he was in the wheelchair in the middle of the ring. He had lost his match against John Cena, had the back and forth with the new GM, Bret Hart, and would quit. This time around, it was a little different because a few months later, Guardians of the Galaxy was done. And that came out, grossed, what, almost a billion dollars? And I think it's safe to say that Batista's popularity has changed quite dramatically since 2014. And as I said earlier, all the wrongs will be righted as far as WWE and Batista goes. I'm confident of that. But I didn't like the way, for the most part, he was treated in 14. But, you know, he had to leave anyway. And that's the way they wrote him off. Now, another audio clip to share. Remember what I said a few moments ago, that Triple H opened up Raw, was livid, and insisted that he would not stop until the Shield was destroyed. The shield was no more. And the main event that same night on Monday Night Raw involved the shield, Randy Orton, Roman Reigns. And what had happened was Roman Reigns, Dean Ambrose, and Seth Rollins were in the ring because Randy Orton came out with Triple H, sledgehammer in hand. Seth Rollins leaves the ring and grabs two chairs. And if you go back and you watch the footage and you just focus on Seth Rollins, for some reason, he doesn't give the other chair to his um, fellow members of the Shield. He puts one in the corner and he has one in his hand. 
And this happened. How do we look? Because we feel great. Bruise beaten up for sure. Because last night we faced our biggest challenge to date. A no-holds-barred elimination match against Evolution. When that napalm settled, we did exactly what we said we were going to do. A clean sweep. We eliminated every single member of Evolution without suffering a single casualty. Now that is what I call domination. Adapt or perish, that was the whole deal, right? Last night at Payback, the shield adapted while evolution perished. And earlier tonight, the whole world was a witness to their implosion. <laughs> And the reason evolution perished was because even though they are three of the greatest superstars in the history of this industry, last night they were not one like the Shield. In the end, they were just three strangers who happened to be standing on the same side of the ring. They weren't brothers. The men standing in this ring are brothers. This is evolution. This is the shield. So Randy Orton, bring your ass out here and let me break your jaw with the symbol of excellence. Roman Reigns is ready. He better be ready. Against the Viper, Randy Orton. Remember what Randy Orton said earlier tonight. That this opponent representing Evolution from St. Louis, Missouri, weighing 245 pounds, the Viper, Randy Orton. And Triple H is a smart man, the cerebral assassin, realizing, uh, listen, Batista quit. I'm bringing a sledgehammer out with me tonight. And now Seth Rollins realizing, after no holds barred last night, it's going to be another battle with Evolution here tonight. The architect of the shield is loading up with the toys as well. Are you going to fight fire with fire? In case you haven't figured it out yet, what I do better than anybody is adapt. Last night was plan A. Tonight, <laughs> plan B. There's always a plan B. Roll 
It's assaulting Ambrose after he took out Reigns. What is going on here? You guys are on top of the world. Why in the world would Seth Rollins do this? My God, Rollins is destroying Ambrose. Broke that chair over. Broke that chair over Ambrose. Just a little tidbit that I brought up on the DTKC show at that time that maybe some of you out there did not notice at the time. And it's probably no big deal, but I just figured I'd just bring it up again. You know, take note of how many times Dean Ambrose was hit with the chair compared to Roman Reigns. I'm not saying that fans consciously noticed that at the time, but I think Dean Ambrose took like 12, 13 shots with the chair. Roman Reigns took maybe one or two at the most. And sure, Randy Orton attacked Roman Reigns later on, but still, and I know what some people are going to say, Dean Ambrose from CZW days, hardcore wrestler, took the chair shots and probably even enjoyed it. But still, when you have one member taking 13 or so and another member only taking really one or two, you know, some people take notice of that. And it was this night in 14 that the Shield was no more. Now, they've reunited since then, but this was a big deal at the time. A lot of people were against this, did not like it. Uh, To this day, a lot of people feel like it was a mistake. And has it helped Seth Rollins' career? Absolutely. Not in the beginning, though. Has it helped Dean Ambrose? Yeah, but he does have his lulls from time to time. And Roman Reigns, look, he was given the ball four straight WrestleMania main events and uh, has not been able to turn it around, you know, during those years. So there you go. 2015, the Elimination Chamber. You had Kevin Owens defeat John Cena. And I still remember this match. This match was one of my favorite Kevin Owens matches on the main roster to date. And it's not going to change. It was an awesome, awesome match. And this was Kevin Owens' first match on the main roster so you know to show up on the main roster you know obviously very popular in nxt not only defeat john cena but put on the match that he put on it really really was a great way to start off with his main roster career so that happened this week in 15 and to wrap this up this week in 2016 we had the contract signing between matt hardy and jeff hardy on TNA Impact Wrestling. And this was when, you know, Matt Hardy playing a piano. I knew you'd come. And then they're in the warehouse. Matt Hardy breaks the bottle over Jeff Hardy's head. Matt Hardy's wife throws the plastic doll into Jeff Hardy's hands. What's wrong with you? And then he uh, puts Jeff Hardy through that round wooden table. That, That just looked like it hurt. But as I said in the beginning of this broadcast, if you go on YouTube and you look at the actual video 
of, and I think it's the director's cut that Impact Wrestling put up. But if you look at that whole entire video at that time, and you look at the number of likes to dislikes, I think it would surprise a lot of people how many dislikes there were. Now, the interesting thing about it is now the, the ratio of likes to dislikes is like two to one. But there's like, what, 35,000 dislikes? And when you have that many for an impact, that that's a lot. And just keep in mind that this was before he went to WWE. And this was before that they let him be Broken Matt in WWE. So when you realize how many people since then who are now liking the clip because they like what Matt Hardy's doing in WWE, imagine the ratio of likes to dislikes a couple of years ago. Much different, for real. And speaking of disliking, what a way to close out this show. It was 2017, a Monday Night Raw, when this happened. I mean, look at all of these Bailey artifacts. These are amazing. Now, you huggers are gonna really like this one. This, this, this is Bailey's first ever doll that she's had since she was two years. Actually, I think she still plays with this one. Never mind. Um, what else do we got here? Oh. Look at this trophy. That is a beautiful trophy. I wonder, I wonder what she won this in. Baseball, basketball, no. No. Best in sportsmanship. Sportsmanship? They give out trophies for that? Wow, wow. She must have really won some scholarships with this one. <laughs> see what else we got here we got slinkies yo-yos <laughs> i really outdid myself this time um oh would you look at that bailey's yearbook <laughs> let's let's see what bailey was voted most likely to do all right we've got oh here she is side ponytail and all bailey most likely to apologize Actually, I do believe Did you actually think I was going to play all that shit? It is one of the worst segments in the history of wrestling. Now, I know some young fans out there or fans of Alexa Bliss or Bailey will say, oh, come on, it was bad, but it's not one of the, you know, the worst of all time. No, you go before the Attitude Era. You find me five segments that were worse than that. It is very, now I'm talking about WWE goes. You know, you can find it in other organizations, but as far as WWE goes, this is easily in the top five of the worst segments of all time. Now, the audio may sound a little bit bad, but when you actually watch the skit, it's 
10 times worse. It was the drizzling shits. And remember, this was all designed to set up the Singapore cane match between Bailey and Alexa Bliss on the pay-per-view, which was the drizzling shits as well. This was a feud that it was it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And I'm sorry that we had to end this show on that note, but still it had to be mentioned. Well, I mean, come on, seriously. One of the, if not worst, skits of all time in WWE. You know, I, look, I know some people say Katie Vick was worse and this, this, and that. Fine. But in the top five, easy. You have to mention it. Notable birthdays this week. Those celebrating birthdays who are no longer with us. Happy birthday to Jim Crockett, Gorilla Monsoon, Big Bully Busick, Furpo Zabisco, Wee Willie Wilson, and Princess Jasmine. Happy birthday, Kamali turned 68. Jake the Snake Roberts and Joe Malenko turned 63. Lex Luger turned 60. Timothy Flowers, 58. Dr. D. David Schultz turns 53. Samu the Head Shrinkers turns 52. Vampiro and Scoot Andrews turn 51. Lexi Fi, 50. Ian Rotten, Pete Gass, and Veronica Kane turn 48. Pablo Marquez, Steve Carino, Mikey Whipwreck, and Nitro Girl Spice turn 45. Chessman turns 43. AJ Styles, Rebecca Reyes, and James Storm turn 41. Adam Jacobs turns 40. Brian Kendrick, 39. Angel Azteca Jr. turns uh, 38, as well as Braxton Sutter. Velvet Sky turns 37. Devin Driscoll and Jazzy Gabbert turn 36. Nia Jax, 34. Justin Carino, 33. Hornswoggle and Mascara Pupera turn 32. No Way Jose, Grado, and Ross Von Eric turn 30. Montez Ford, happy birthday, turns 28. And Cody Hall, the son of Scott Hall, turns 27. Notable debuts this week in history, not too many. Masa Saito debuted in 65, Taz in 87, and Laurel Van Ness 2014. And notable deaths this week, those who unfortunately passed on this week in history. Classy Freddie Blassie died at 85. Boston Bobby Regan, 84. Mike Lane, 82. Freddie Gomez and Kurt Von Brauner, 79. Angel Rojo at 72. Tex McKenzie at 70. Lee Fields, Soldak Orky, and Sandy Barr died at 69. Bull Montana, 66. Man Mountain Dean, 61. El Mongol, 58. Dory Funk Sr., Pete McKay, and Tommy Rogers died at 54. Dale Starr at 51. Ripper Savage, 48. We lost the Junkyard Dog this week at 45. And Espanto, number one. And Sean Summers died at age 35. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Week in Wrestling History. Follow me on Twitter at DonTonyD. The website, DonTony.com. Email me, DonTony at DonTony.com. Facebook.com slash DTKC Show. All of our episodes, you can find them at DonTonyKevinCastle.com. And finally, if you like what we do, want to support the shows, financially help keep us in business, keep these free, keep the bills paid, the lights on, Consider our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash Don Tony. For as little as five bucks, you could be part of a very tight-knit family. They are truly the stockholders of what we do. A lot of their feedback and suggestions heavily weigh on the all of the shows that we do. But not only that, by signing up there, you got a lot of exclusive content there. Every other week, Mish of Wrestling Soup and I do a show called Breakfast Soup. There's hundreds of hours of content there. 
Um, it's like a combination of breakfast with Blossy and wrestling soup. If everyone had always wanted a Kevin Castle solo show, he does a show every other week called Castle Chronicles, hundreds of hours there. We do giveaways, pay-per-view predictions, contests. Um, we do early release of this show and others. And they are, once again, truly the stockholders of what we do. It's a very small, tight-knit family, but you sign up there, you will absolutely love it. So patreon.com slash Don Tony. So everyone, be well. I will be back in one week with your next episode of This Week in Wrestling History. Send your feedback, as always. It is much appreciated. And believe me, I actually read every single person's emails, responses, comment on Twitter, your feedback is really, really necessary. It really dictates uh, how the show progresses. And you can see from episode one to now, the show has transformed in a lot of ways and a lot of things have been added. People love the clips. And I try to play clips that you may have never heard before. This episode, I think, is a great example of that. Sure, there's memorable moments with the Pipers, Pits, and others. But overall, though, you'll always find a couple of gems in in the shows that uh, you may have forgot about, may have never heard before, or may be introduced to for the very first time. So, all right, everyone, be well. I will talk to you all soon. Ciao. Cloud is powering tomorrow's transformative missions. Federal agencies are partnering with SAIC to help them meet these critical moments. Where bold moves require confident blueprints. Where you can accelerate transformation through consistency. Where you can innovate forward and never look back. SAIC quickly and securely migrates large-scale workloads to the cloud with the confidence you need to assure your mission. Learn more at SAIC.com cloud. Snow falls on an old apartment. Inside, the holiday season is in swing. On the first floor, Cokes are poured and stories shared among friends. Three flights up, one generation passes down the family recipe to the next. Inside every home, there's magic. Coca-Cola, real magic. Enjoy the real magic of the season with close friends, family, and refreshing Coca-Cola paired with all your holiday meals.